I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to introduce our guest today? Absolutely. Uh, this is Justin from Arkansas. I believe it's uh, Fox, Arkansas, or maybe that's where the encounter was. And I want to thank you, Justin, for uh, coming on and, and sharing your experience. Um, before we jump in, I want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. And if you like the show, let us know. Click the like button if you haven't subscribed already. Please click the subscribe button. Also, if you want to support Creek Devil, you can do so with Patreon. We've got a link in the description. So, Justin, I'm going to hand this off to you and tell us what happened. What you know? How how did this start out? What led up to it? What was the encounter like? And you don't have to be real specific on the location, but you can just say you know what you know. Maybe a section of Arkansas. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, we get a lot of activity out of Arkansas. Very famous for this creature. Well, yeah, um, I live in central Arkansas, and uh, I go up to Fox to hunt. And um, I've been up there before. Uh, first time I went up to Fox, I um, know somebody who has a cabin up there. And first time I went up there was in, I believe it was in 2000. 14 or 15 but uh at, during that stage of my life i wasn't really um i didn't have bigfoot on my mind like i've i've always thought it was possible you know that he existed or they existed but it wasn't really something that was on my radar or something that i thought about a lot and uh, i didn't notice anything the first time i went up there and um second time i uh, went there last year it was November 12th, uh, modern gun season opened on the 13th and, uh, me and my buddy, uh, we, we went up there on the 12th. It was a Friday and we, we drove up there and we brought our bows with us cause we wanted to do some bow hunting that evening, try to get one before gun season started. And, um, so we, we went out there and, uh, didn't see anything. And my dad met us at the cabin later that evening. So when we got there to the cabin, he was there waiting. He had the fire going and everything. So we, we got our gear uh, unpacked and everything and sat around the fire and talked for a little while. And then we hit the sack and get some rest for the next morning. And so that night, um, just to kind of give you an idea on the, the layout of inside the cabin, um, there was a, a living room and then there was a bedroom adjacent to the living room and a bathroom next to it. And the bathroom, um, 
there was two entrances to that bathroom one connected to my bedroom and then the other was to the living room. Well, my buddy slept in the living room and my dad went upstairs cause there was a master bedroom upstairs and he slept up there. So, um, we all hit the sack and, uh, I sometimes struggle sleeping. So I, um, took, uh, like some, I don't know, it was allergy medicine or something to kind of help me get to sleep. And I also put a, um, it's like, like a white noise app on my phone to kind of, kind of, um, blot out, you know, any kind of noise that would kind of wake me up or whatever, because I sleep pretty good with it playing in the background. So, um, I can blame my daughter for that. Cause when, <laughs> when we had our daughter, she had to have her white noise. So we always played it anyway. I got used to sleeping with it. So, um, I had that playing and I went right to sleep. I was pretty tired. So I remember it was about one thirty in the morning. I woke up out of a really deep sleep and, uh, it was a, a loud noise. I, I don't know what it was. It woke me up. I jumped out of bed and I thought something like fell in the room or, you know, maybe something I had on the bed, maybe slipped off and hit the floor and I didn't see anything. And I was thinking maybe my buddy's in the bathroom and I didn't see the bathroom light on. And so I was like, maybe it was my dad. So I didn't think much about it. And I went back to sleep. So the next morning I get up and, uh, making some coffee my buddy he he's waking up and uh he was like hey justin do you hear that weird noise last night and i was like yeah i do remember waking up something woke me up out of a pretty deep sleep and it startled me i thought it was you and he was like no he was like it was strange man he said um man it sounded like somebody with a stick or baseball bat hitting a tree outside the cabin and he said it was weird because it started over here it would knock four or five times then it would stop and it would move over here and then it would do it again and then it would move over there and it did it again and he said it, at one point it literally sounded like it was 20 30 feet from the front of the cabin right out front and i was like that is weird and I was like, you know, I bet I woke up when it was right out front because where the room I was sleeping in, the bed was positioned underneath the front window where the porch was. So my head was right up against the outside wall. And I'm guessing that's probably what woke me up. And I said, you know, um, tonight I think I'm going to, not take anything to help me sleep just in case this happens again. And I'm not going to play my white noise tonight because I want to hear this if it happens again. And he was like, yeah, that was pretty weird. And at this point, my dad's walking down from upstairs and he was like, did you hear that noise last night? And I was like, yeah, actually I was just talking to my buddy about it. And uh, he was like, man, this is, this is weird. He said his eyes were really big and, he was pretty freaked out and he was like, just a kind of side note here. My, my dad's had a lot of experiences growing up, like with, you know, ghosts or demons or whatever. And, uh, he's kind of keen to the supernatural cause he's experienced some things. 
And he was like, man, it kind of reminded me of when I heard that demon running through my house. And uh, I was like, okay, you know, well, I was like, I, I was like, I, I think it's Bigfoot. And he was like, yeah, I'm a believer now. And I was like, well, don't jump the gun here. Let's try to figure this out. So anyway, um, we, we have an eventful day and um, my buddy kills a deer and I help him clean it. And we, uh, we go to a, a, a town nearby and get a steak because there's not really any places to eat there in Fox. And uh, so we get back to the cabin. It was pretty late and we were really tired. And uh, I set out my game cam just to see if I could catch something. And so we hit the hit the sack, and then sure enough, like it was literally one thirty on the dot. I woke up to that noise, and uh, I did, this time, you know, it was totally quiet in my room, and I heard those knocks, and it was just, it was crazy. Like it, there was some force behind those knocks because you could hear it echoing through the woods, and it did it like. I remember it was probably three or four times and it the, it was consecutive knocks. It was like whack, whack, whack. And it sounded like it was right outside of my room. And I, I jumped up, I, I looked through the window, I grabbed my 10 millimeter and I, I, uh, I didn't see anything. Of course it was dark and I'd open the door to the living room. And then I see my buddy, he's already out the front door He's a federal law enforcement agent, so he had his sidearm with him, and he was out the front door um, heading to that noise. And I'd walk outside the front porch, and he's about, he's probably about 10 feet off the porch towards the direction of the noise, and it stopped immediately when he opened that front door. It probably happened, I, I think I remember counting four knocks until it stopped, and I'm and he opened the front door like right when I opened my bedroom door. So it stopped immediately when he went outside. So he, he went, he ran towards the noise. And, and when I walked outside, we both stopped and we listened. And it was just dead quiet. Like you couldn't hear anything. Like it, you didn't hear any. It was just dead quiet. Like it was eerily dead quiet. Like no no leaves moving, nothing running away. Um, you know, you would think if if it was an animal, which I, there's no way it could have been an, an, just a normal animal making that noise because there was so much force behind it. But if it was, you would have heard it at least probably run away. But we didn't hear anything. So we stood out there for maybe... I don't know, 30 seconds just listening, shining our flashlights around. We didn't see anything. We didn't hear anything. So we just, we go back inside and close the door. And he looks at me and he was like, Justin, that is the weirdest thing. He was like, man, I I went outside. I, I heard that noise and it was right there. Whatever was making the noise was right there. Like it had to have been 20 feet from the front porch. And he's like, I'd open the door and ran to that spot. And I shined my light and I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. It was just creepy, 
just he he was kind of lost for words and I was like I was too like I didn't know what it was I was like man that is weird and so um the the following morning uh we were packing up our gear and well we we got one more hunt in that morning and uh I remember walking me and him walking out to our stands and we 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 were we were kind of on high alert, you know, looking around with our flashlights and stuff, but I wasn't scared, but it was just kind of, you know, uneasy, I guess. But, um, so yeah, we, we, we didn't get anything on that hunt. So we packed up our gear around noontime and I said, I want to try to figure out the sound and see if there's anything that could have produced that sound that we heard. So, um, I was like, I told my dad and my buddy, I was like, stay in the cabin and I'm going to, you know, take a stick and hit this a tree like as hard as I can just to see what it sounds like. So they were like, yeah, okay, go ahead. And um, so I, I did. I found a stick and uh, I, I hit a tree outside the cabin and they were like, eh, it's kind of similar and um i was like how about this so i i hit it against the cedar fence post because there was a cedar fence post that went all the way across the front of the cabin and they were like that right there that sounds exactly what we heard so i was like hmm maybe he wasn't knocking on a tree maybe it was knocking on the fence post i don't know but whatever it was it had a lot of force behind it and it was obviously something that was holding an object and hitting either a tree or a fence post with something hard. It wasn't anything. I don't know what else it could have been like had to have had an opposing thumb to hold something like that. But, um, just to kind of, um, back up a little bit to kind of give you an idea about the property. Um, we were, out kind of in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's not too far from like the highway, but where we went was privately owned. It's, uh, there's probably two or three fence layers of fences from the, the road to the cabin. And it's a good little drive back there and it's thick woods. And, uh, that cabin is adjacent to like a hauler and that hauler connects to, um, a creek up there in Fox and uh like there's no way there would have been anybody out there there's no reason for anybody to have been out there and they would have been stupid to do it and um I mean it's it's Arkansas like people in Arkansas like everybody's carrying out in the country and mostly in the cities too like everybody carries but yeah it was it was pretty odd and um there was a, a Facebook group that I'm in and I posted my story in that local Bigfoot face group that I'm in. And, uh, I thought it was interesting because there was a, this guy that commented and he said, um, I own some property north of Shirley that connects to that Creek that goes near Fox. And, uh, he was like, I hear those tree knocks all the time. And he's like, I've heard some hoops and hollers. And he was like, I even found a footprint that was like 22 inches in, in length. 
And uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. And somebody else also commented and said uh, that they had some trash cans picked up and thrown over their like electrical fence barrier. And I don't know if that was, you know, Bigfoot or who knows, like these are people just saying things, but all I can vouch for is my personal experience. And I can just say it was pretty odd and I can't explain it. You know, Justin, you actually anticipated one of the questions I had, and that was, uh, what was the terrain like? You know, when you first walk out the door, what do you see? What uh, describe to us? Is it trees? Um, you know, what what you know? What would we see if we were at the cabin? And we're open the front door and take a look outside. So yeah, if you open the cabin door, it's um, there's a there's a porch there. And then a few feet of just, you know, I guess it would have been grass that was covered in leaves. I don't know. And then there's a cedar fence that uh, goes across the front of the cabin. And the woods, it's surround. the cabin is surrounded by trees and woods. It's not um, really thick right around the cabin because I'm, I guess he, he had a few cut down. It's not like a real thick, a thicket or anything, but... Um, it's, it's out in the woods. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's right smack dab in the middle of the woods. It's not like a, um, it's not like a field or anything like that. Uh, it's pretty rocky terrain, um, uneven terrain. It's pretty hilly. And, um, uh, we were on, I think there's probably, I don't want to try to, to give away any details of where I was because it's not my property, but, um, we were, uh, let's see, there, it was like a, a gravel road that went down to that cabin. And then, like I said, the cabin was built right on the bluff of this side of this. Um, it's not a mountain, but it's like a, a big drop off, I guess. And down below there was like a, like a holler or a washout where all the water goes down to. And then I looked on the Google maps and saw where that holler kind of connects to that Creek that I'm telling you about. So it's pretty rough terrain. Yeah. And, And again, you're anticipating my question, which is excellent. So there is a water source. There's a Creek nearby. How close is that Creek? And the washout, does it have water like a pond or small lake or something year round? Or, you know, what's the water sources like around there? Well, I haven't I haven't scouted out a lot behind the cabin. I plan on going up there this year to put another deer stand up there. And I'm me and my buddy want to scout around. But I can't say like the water source, like, I think it's just, there's not like a lake or a pond close to the cabin or anything. It's just, um, just wash out from the terrain. And, uh, I think that Creek is probably, um, maybe three quarters to a mile as the crow flies. So, um, that Creek isn't too far from that cabin. And that's what, you know, I was thinking is, I know, you know, from what I've looked into and heard that, you know, Bigfoot usually stays around water sources and possibly travels 
in the water, like creeks and rivers and such. And uh, it made me wonder, you know, because that guy's property, like I said, he, he said he had property that connected to that creek and he had activity too. And and the creek is, is it year round or, or a seasonal creek or do, do you have any way of knowing? Uh, I have, I haven't put uh, physical eyes on the creek. I've just seen it on Google maps and it looks like a year round uh, creek to me. Okay. See if I can pull it up and look at it while I'm talking to you. But yeah, I remembered looking at it and it was, it seemed pretty uh, prominent from Google maps. So, you know, the other question I had was, um, and I'm just going to relate my own personal experience um, again. Sorry, folks. <laughs> but the one that I saw that the speed at which it moved was absolutely astonishing. How, how can something move that fast? But do you have any indication, any sense of your buddy who's federal law enforcement? He's opening the front cabin door. I'm assuming you have the cabin door locked, right? So you got to unlock yeah. it and open that door as quick as you can. And so what do you think? A second, two seconds at the most to get the locks undone and get the door open? Or how would you describe that? I mean, like I said, when I got out of bed, I literally jumped out of bed right when I heard the noise. It wasn't like a delay. It was just immediate action. And I immediately grabbed my 10 millimeter Jumped out, ran to the window and looked, ran to the door and opened it and saw him out the door. So there was probably, I'm guessing, five seconds, five to maybe five to ten seconds there. Okay. Um, yeah. Before I, I, you know, I probably noticed him outside. I mean, oh, the noise okay. stopped so suddenly. It was, there's no way he, he if it was you know, something normal anyway, there's no way that it could have gotten away that quickly without us, it, or at least him noticing it and hearing it run off, you know, because it's, right. there's leaves everywhere. Nothing could have gotten away quietly. So he was spooked. Your buddy was as well as you and your dad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my my dad is convinced now. I've I've told him I was like, you need to have an open mind about Bigfoot, and he's like, you know, I do, I do. But you know, before he was like, I, I totally believe it's possible, you know. And now he's like, oh yeah, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? I, I had a friend of mine like that. I I thought he was like, the whole time he'd been humoring me along, and then when we saw the first footprints, where you see these undeniable prints it was the belief <clears throat> went from in the head to the heart or yeah i really believe um so your dad was was he what was what was he thinking this second night you know when your buddies ran out there and what did your dad do um <laughs> it's kind of funny uh, the next morning, I was like, did you hear that noise last night? He was like, oh, I heard it. He was like, uh, I asked him, I was like, what well, did you get up and look out the window to see if you could see anything? And he said, 
I was too freaked out. I didn't want to get out of bed. <laughs> so he was like, I, I was wide awake. He said, I never, I never went to sleep that night. And when I heard it knocking, he was like, I, I was awake when it started. And he was like, I didn't want to get out of bed. <laughs> I can't blame him. I understand. Yeah, he, like I said, he's um, had several experiences, you know, with weird, unexplained stuff before. So he's uh, he was kind of spooked. He was like, I don't know, maybe that thing was a demon. And I was like, uh, who knows? But uh, I was like, I, I'm leaning towards Bigfoot. So I think everybody's wondering, and I'm I might be a little bit curious. Just it's getting a little off topic, but what were the experiences that your dad had with the paranormal? What what did he experience, and why was he having those experiences? Well, um, I've uh, my my dad's side of the family is kind of um, I don't know how to how to start this off um they're they've they've had my my grandparents had a kind of a rough relationship and it kind of caused some um tension and stuff and you know negativity and and we're we're christians and my my dad got saved when he was a teenager and uh my my grandmother wasn't saved at the time and my grandpa was so they were totally opposite, and um, my grandmother was living kind of a uh, kind of a wild life, I guess you could say. And uh, so, when my dad got saved, he said that he was home alone one evening, and he heard um, what he thought was his dad come home and walk down the hallway into his dad's bedroom, and my dad's bedroom was next to his dad's bedroom so uh the foot or the headboard of his bed was con- connected to the wall of his dad's room so he thought he heard his dad walk in there and he was like normally when i hear my dad come home he walks in there and he turns on the news and i can always hear the, the tv going and hear him get in bed and he's like i didn't hear that and it was just dead quiet so he was like, all of a sudden, I kind of got a heaviness and a, a feeling in, in my, he said, a feeling in my spirit, like in the inside of my gut. And he was like, it didn't feel right. So he said, I started praying. And he was like, as soon as I started praying, I heard whatever was in my dad's room stomp and run. And he said, whatever it was sounded really heavy. And he said, it shook the whole room and he said he was praying and he heard that thing running and stomping down the hallway and he said he put his back up against the door and was praying and he could feel the door shaking and everything when this thing ran by and he said it literally was like it ran through a wall and disappeared he was like it just was there and then it was gone and he was like it was he was like i knew it had to have been you know, a demon. It wasn't a person. He was like, there's no way. And, um, he was like, I think he said 30 minutes later or something. He said, one of his parents got home. I can't remember who it was. And 
he was like, did you guys, one of you guys weren't here earlier? And they were like, no. So he was definitely there home alone. And it was, that was the, I think one of the the first weird experiences he had. And um, like, I know my, my mom's had several experiences too, and I've seen some stuff myself. So definitely like, you know, some history of, of uh, supernatural type activity. Well, that would, number one, absolutely spook me out to the nth degree. And number two, I hope I never have an experience like that. <laughs> Bigfoot is enough to, uh, you know, that that's spooky enough. So, yeah, yeah. And I, the, the Bigfoot topic is so intriguing because, you know, there's the, the, the physical side of things and people, you know, believe it's the physical like a primate or something and then there's the other side that believes it's supernatural or what you call the woo-woos and i guess i'm kind of in the middle because i hear i hear certain things and that kind of lean me towards one side and i'm like okay maybe it is and then i hear some other stuff and i'm like okay maybe it's that but i'm kind of in the middle so it's just a strange topic it is. It's a very strange topic. Um, I will say that as far as the woo stuff goes, I have I've just seen a lot of things and evidence where it's like, oh my gosh, that is so weird. But then there's there at least in my experience a very down to earth um, normal explanation for it. Extraordinary, but still down to earth. So um, <clears throat> anyway. Justin, I, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate it. You have a, you're well-spoken, articulate, and you had a great encounter, I guess, if you can call it that. Um, certainly had an encounter, and we've had a number of people that we've talked to from Arkansas. And Well, I believe, um, who was it that made a movie down there a while back? Oh, you're talking about The Legend of Boggy Creek. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Speaking of that, um, I do have a friend that grew up in Falk, and um, he's a friend from my church. And he, we are kind of planning a trip to. We were supposed to do it this past fall, but we never did. But he's supposed to take me down there to Falk, and we're supposed to do some little scouting and everything. And he said his dad knows a few people that. I've had some experiences, so I'm I'm looking forward to whenever that does happen because he um, he told me that he had an experience, and if I can tell you that, I if you have time, I can tell you that real quick. But sure, you bet. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, yeah. He he said when he was um, in the young in his younger days, like high school days, he took some friends out and. Um, it was him and a buddy and then two girls and they were going to drive out in the middle of nowhere and kind of play a prank on these girls and scare them. So he said they, they drove out in the middle of the night. He said it was, I think around 11 or 12 o'clock and they drove pretty far out on this dirt road and it was out in the middle of nowhere, pitch black. And he said, um, his buddy like shut the car off and then, acted like it wouldn't turn back on kind of freaked the girls out and then um, he said like his buddy screamed or something and scared the girls or whatever 
And he said when he turned the car back on and the headlights came on, he said that he saw this get he's guessing, but he said he saw this seven foot ish type hairy creature standing in the road a little ways down the dirt road in front of him. When the headlights turned on, it shined right on it and it was standing right there in the road. And uh, he said it just kind of calmly walked off the road and into the woods. And he was like, there's no way that that was somebody in a costume for one, because we were out in the middle of nowhere. And he was like, who in their right mind would be wearing a costume, just waiting for somebody to drive down this, uh, you know, uh, unpopular road to hopefully scare somebody. He was like, there's no way. And he says, I, I wholeheartedly believe it was a Bigfoot. So I, I thought that was interesting too. But well, he's supposed to is. take me to Falk, so I'm hoping something happens. Well, keep it, keep in touch if he does. I just want to comment that uh, there's maybe there's a little moral to the story, and <laughs> that'll teach him for trying to scare the girls. So. <laughs> All right, Justin, listen, um, you know how to get a hold of us. Keep us posted if anything new happens uh, at the cabin and if you get anything at in Falk, we'd love to hear about it so uh absolutely yeah thank you for being on the show today we really appreciate it and um you've been a great guest and very very interesting story yeah thanks justin we really appreciate you joining us today well i appreciate the opportunity it's uh, been a pleasure talking to you guys and i have uh, much respect for you will Oh, thank you so you much. You too, Tom. <laughs> Even though I don't know you, I've, I know of Will's work, but I, you're really pleasant to speak to and communicate with. Oh, thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. All right, everyone. We'll stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot History, near Platina, California, winter 1966. Mr. Hampton said at their house, two miles west of Platina, after an absence of two days, he and his wife found 17 to 18 inch tracks with long strides, eight inches deep in the snow. Where they climbed a bank, they were at what appeared to be elbow prints, with impressions of hair in them. The door of his house was broken off its hinges. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Uh, not sure what happened to Milo. He was going to join us, and he hasn't responded, so we'll bring him on if he he gets a hold of me and says he's ready. But uh, Forrest and Tom are here. Uh, Tom, I guess we can jump right into questions. Okay, excellent. I'm going to start off with the very first question. This is from Lisa. Lisa wants to know, how can you tell if Scat is from a Bigfoot? How can you tell that they're responsible? And before... I want to get an answer from both of you, but I'm just going to throw in uh, one little thing to consider here. And that is, if there's an amber nearby, you might want to ask her if she's heard anything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well. I'm not touching that. (laughs) I've seen quite a bit of Sasquatch scat and have some pretty good pictures of it. So... 
the main distinguishing point, and, and I wasn't sure at first when I first started finding this. I remember reading um, in one of Green's books, John Green, when he talked about Bob Titmus and Ray Wallace. This was way back in the early 60s when Wallace, before he decided that he was going to be a hoaxer, he was really into the subject, really interested in what was going on and, and helping and involved. So him and, him and um, Titmus did a volumetric test on one of the many piles of scat they'd been finding in conjunction with footprints, etc. And it came out to be equal to that of what would be excreted by a 1,200-pound horse. Okay, so that's that's the volume. But when I thought to myself, okay, I'm seeing stuff up here, but is it bare? There's nothing else it could have been other than either a bear or Sasquatch. So I did some research into, I mean, and through quite a few bear experts and hunters and when they talked about bear scat and there's only black bear up there so that's the only one i looked at and even grizzly i looked a little bit at that grizzly scat uh will get up to you know the segments two inches thick uh black bear the upper end is about an inch and a half usually it's you know that size or a little smaller and, and not huge amounts when you find sasquatch scat you're talking something that's two inches thick and up and I mean and I mean I'm in the upper and usually three four inches across and I've I've found scat up on the Klamath River that the segments measured four inches across and and one of them was blackberries and there were literally gallons of blackberries that were so much mass um, it, it's something that when when you see it and if you you understand the difference to, between different types of bear black bear brown bear and you look at this and you think there there's just no possibility that it's bear Forrest, what do you think you know oh well i'm just going to oh, well. interject real quick we got a guy up in northern california and i don't we don't have his permission so i don't think we can post his picture but he sent it to you a few months ago yeah it was hunting season undeniable huge yeah, I put he put a, a Mountain Dew can next to it, and it dwarfed the Mountain Dew can. Yes. And and the, we're talking about the diameter. The length was, you know, what, two, three feet long. It was oh, huge. yeah. It was, it was a huge quantity. So. Forrest, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, uh, having not ever seen Bigfoot scat, um, I'm going to have to concede to you on that because I know that you're familiar with it, but uh, it would <laughs> it'd be just like any other primate scat. Uh, it'd be relative to the size of the animal. And I don't think that it would be anything other than uh, gigantic poop piles is all I can say out of one um, versus what a human or a, a any other kind of primate would make so by virtue of the, the greater size of a big foot you're going to have a bigger and larger um excrement yeah i found one pile one time the mound was eight i measured, measured it across 18 inches across and and just to, you know when they they gave the the estimate of a 1200 pound horse i thought yeah i can see that you know it, it's kind of when it's on the ground it kind of looks like that oh milo is with us What's going on, Milo? I think he's muted. 
you come into the conversation and we're talking about poop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tom, what else you got for us? Okay. Well, we got another one. This is, you know, kind of along a similar trajectory here. This is, hi all. There are clearly thousands of hikers and hunters who move through the Bigfoot territory on a regular basis, parks, fishing spots, or rural forests, farmland, without seeing anything. So what are the signs, besides footprints, that people can look for that indicate that the creatures are in the area? And we kind of answered that for one of the signs. Um, how come even good hunters never seem to notice these things? Uh, if you can track a moose, why does Sasquatch never give itself away? Well, you know, hunting moose and deer and elk and things like that, bear, you know, hunters for many, 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 many years have known what the signs are to look for those animals. Um, the things a Sasquatch does could be right in front of them, and if they're not familiar with those signs, they're not going to recognize them. They would pass it off as normal background uh, background noise. That's a good terminology to use, I guess. Well, and Will, we've said this before, they're hiding in plain sight. Sure they are. Um, you can walk forests, you said this, you know, chimps and gorillas do it. I guess chimps more, more so that you can walk right by them and they remain motionless. So if they're even a little bit in the brush, you know, you're not going to see them. And they're not stupid. They know how to hide. Right. I, th I think Milo's wank is working. Are you there, Milo? I'm here. Ah, there he is. No, I, I was cooking for Jeannie, and so we had brunch. But I was going to say with the the whole thing with why we don't or hunters can't find them is because, well, number one, they're an apex predator themselves. You yeah. know. Yeah, very so, true. You know, I would look at it that way. I was like, well, they're they're used to being the hunter too. Yeah, exactly. I think it's you a know, real good point. Because, well, I mean, when I was in Baghdad, it'd be the same thing. I mean, we we were hunting stuff, you know, so when you're that kind of keyed for it. But at the same time, I think they watch us more than we watch them because they have that, uh, you know, that edge of being out there in their territory. And we're actually in theirs. We're not, you know, it it's... It's like what we, a couple episodes ago where you said, Will, that, uh, you know, we, out there, that's all theirs. I can't, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that is their element. We're out of our element when we go out there in the woods. Yeah, you're correct. And, it, you know, it goes back to um, where people say, well, how come game cameras don't work? Well, you put stuff out in their living room, they're going to spot it right away and they're going to avoid it like the plague. Well, they're uh, going to watch you put it up. Most likely, sure. I mean, you know, I'm. it's, it's like if you try, exactly like you said, it's their living room. That's their living space. They've been there for eons and we just go in there all we technology-wise. Yeah, we're totally, <laughs> we're, we're, we're like babies in, in Toyland out there, you know? I'm sure Forrest would agree about other primates avoiding, especially man-made objects in their environment. 
Oh, yeah. Well, you're dealing with an animal that has a level of intelligence of uh, almost ours, I would say. Um, they, um, I consider them to kind of be the black ops of the forest. Uh, chimps, yeah. uh, <laughs> they will sit and watch humans walk right by them. Uh, because they know the danger that we create for them. So uh, unless they have a purpose in wanting to engage us, they're not going to. And it's just like a, a big cat watching its prey. I mean, how many times have you heard stories about people that are out hunting and a big cat's just sitting there watching the hunter hunt? And uh, that's exactly what these animals do. And um, uh, primates are are very intelligent. Uh, they are reactive, as I always say, to their environment. And um, so that's, that's the way I kind of look at them as being the black ops of the, of the forest. You know, that's a good point. I like point. that. That I, sounds I cool. I do too. I like it as well. I, uh, I have many witness accounts where people have watched these creatures, you know, at the edge of a tree line, just very intently watching other people. Well, I'm going to run a hypothetical question by you, but you've experienced this yourself. Your very first encounter, two things. Number one, if you had not walked into the forest, into the tree line by the old growth maple tree, what are the, what are, what's the chances that you would have seen these things? Oh, I never would have saw them. Right. Exactly. So how many times have you walked by in your yard and they may have been there and you never saw them? We we don't know the answer to that, but it, it could have been plenty of times. Oh, and Milo could but, tell you how thick that brush was. Remember Milo over by our barn? That stand of trees oh yeah, over there, it, how thick that it, was? Jeff couldn't even go through there. It was so thick. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was somebody that was really skinny. Yeah. Skinnier than me. <laughs> you, but here's another example. Well, when you did walk through and you went into towards the maple tree, you almost certainly walked past another one and you never knew it. Yeah, it was pretty brushy on both sides. Um, and I had to push through the tree limbs. That's why I didn't see the, the first one until I got through there. And and the other one would have been to my right, so it was it was actually thicker brush on the right side of where I came through. So yeah, I, I wouldn't have seen anything over there. It yeah. could have been five feet away. And it's undeniable away. that it was it was it was watching you. Oh yeah, because it, it came from it came from out behind some uh, st some stands of brush there. Yeah, it could have been five feet away, and I, I wouldn't have seen it. Right, and you weren't looking for it. You yeah, had no was, idea. And the sun was, you know, pretty well down. So, I mean, it was still light, but it was getting dark. You know, I mean, I could see, but, you know, there were lots of shadows, so easy to hide in. Yeah, Willie with you, though. Oh, he chickened out and ran back to the house. Well, see, there you go, right <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> he was smart. dog. <laughs> yes. So everybody says, he, so like everybody says, you're the dummy that went into the brush, not the dog. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, it's just like it's just like that. Uh, you know, when we found the tracks up there on that little hill outside the barn area, underneath those cedar trees, 
how many times I have no idea how long they had sat up there and watched the comings and goings of us and the horses, the cats and dogs and everything else uh, under that cedar tree, just sitting there probably perfectly still watching us because I never knew it until uh, Sandra's grandson happened to uh, find the footprints up there. And it was obviously two different individuals because there was a large set and then there was a smaller set. Yeah, I guess you wouldn't know unless they uh, revealed themselves by doing something. Right. Or wave hello, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, they, there's that whole thing being a predator. I mean, they had the luxury of waiting and watching and, and seeing what kind of, I'm, I'm going to just say routine. And they say, oh, yeah, here they go, same same time of the day, they got to go out and do this. They got to feed everybody. They, you know, and if you do it at a regular time all the, every day, they're going to watch that and be aware of that, wouldn't they? See, Milo, that's a good point. That's one of the reasons I tell people when they're having problems with these creatures is to break up your routine because they will observe your routine and they get used to those patterns. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's why we... Even when we were in Germany for terrorists and stuff, you always change your route. You know, I hate to say it like that, but you know, that kind of thing is what what people when something you think is after you and harassing you, you change your stuff up. What do we have next, Tom? Okay, a uh, couple of questions that this person has about Bigfoot predation. Uh, in the last Bigfoot in history, uh, there's a report of a woman in Central America abducted by a hairy man for many years. The husband was accused of murder, but eventually the woman was found. So the question he has is, do you think this is happening more frequently in North America than people may suspect? And then the other question is, are there really Bigfoot human hybrids wandering around with Bigfoot tribes, or is this too far-fetched? Uh, do most of the infants of such crossings survive? Uh, um, on the first one, so, it would be, um, yes, it does happen more than people think. Uh, the people aren't returned alive. Uh, and on the other part, I mean, I, I think Forrest could probably answer that better, but I'm going to say, no, there aren't any Bigfoot-human hybrids. Would you like to address that, Forrest? Sure. Um, of course, over here in Marble Falls, I've told you all about the incident. We had uh, the young lady that was tending sheep in the hill country here that she was abducted by uh, Bigfoot. They in, they did find her alive over in Blanco, and of course, as the story goes, my grandfather told me that they uh, never found the hairy man, but there are stories and recounted tales that they did find it and they killed it in a cave. We don't have a body to prove that. So on to the hybrids. Um, no, I, 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 I just have a real doubt that there is a cross speciation of uh, hybrids. Maybe within their kind, there might be, but, um, from one group to another, and I think that there are some differences within them. But as far as a human being able to cross with uh, Bigfoot, 
you know, of course we don't have one. We've never run the genome on that I know of uh, on a Bigfoot. I know that there are some people out there that say that we do have the genome on a Bigfoot and that it uh, supposedly exhibits the fact that it is a hybrid with a female on the bottom side. You know, I don't know. I don't know at all about the truthfulness or the veracity of that. But uh, I know that it is totally impossible to cross a human with a gorilla, and it is totally impossible to cross a human with a chimpanzee because that actually has been attempted by the Russians. So they can tell you it ain't happening. Yeah, I would think with these creatures it would be the same thing. Yeah, I would think so as well. Yes. Okay, Tom, what else do we have? Okay, so, Will, what do you know and believe about the land between the lakes? Um, our favorite subject, Dogman, the murder of a family and a hunter in that area. And what percentage of the time do you think missing people are, in fact, killed by Bigfoot? Oh, <laughs> Whatever well. some dumbass goes <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I'm not a big fan of the whole dogman thing, and they, they've disguised they've disguised the true uh, terminology. You know, people don't. You know, if they go out and say, "Oh, werewolves are real," people look at them like they're nuts, so they call it dogman. It's the same thing. Um, with I think they're misinterpreting a lot of these things, and, and of course, people are going to gripe about what I'm saying, but uh, it's just the way it is. So, um, and they gripe about. If they were hung with a new rope. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, you know, they're misinter a lot of these are misinterpreted Bigfoot encounters. In fact, I've even seen uh, YouTube videos where they've got, you know, the pic drawing of a dog man on the cover, but the story is clearly a Bigfoot story. And it, so people do this all the time, and, and I think that's what accounts for most of these. Hmm. You know, as far as being people taken by, I'm sure that people, they get taken by these things. Well, I'm disappointed. You want to jump in there, Tom, and I'm comment? Or... <laughs> I, I know Tom wants to comment. Were you hoping for a dog man? <laughs> I was, yes. You well, were? I think, really? <laughs> I think on that account, I think that there might be a possibility, and I think we've discussed this before, that, um, you know, there's baboons, which are monkeys, and uh, they have a pronounced uh, prognathism that gives them the appearance of a uh, canine. And I think that there is a possibility, and there is a picture out there that I have looked at and looked at and looked at, and I think they call it the Beast of Seven Shoots. And um, that there may very well be a possibility that there are types of Bigfoot that exhibit this uh, really strong nasal prognathism that gives them an appearance of a muzzle. And, and, and you're correct, there is that, a variation you, that has that. Yeah, you could very well, with something like that, have very, very pronounced canines, upper and lower. I mean, let's face it, primates have big canines. We as humans are the only ones that have the reduced canines. 
And all through our history, uh, you see, uh, you know, through the Australopithecines and on down, you see a reduction of that canine. Um, so it's, um, that's what I would surmise. And it's strictly, uh, you know, my opinion, and it's strictly theoretical because nobody knows for sure. We still don't have one on a slab, and that's the only way they're ever going to prove it. Right. Well, my sources tell me that, you know, of course, we've been through all that, the various types, but of the two main groupings, one grouping has teeth more like ours. The other grouping has the pronounced canines. And and there is one of the vari- the variants that does have the elongated face, like a baboon. That type does have the canines. Could easily be mistaken for something like this, but I know there's going to be people that say, well, so-and-so saw one and had these big dog-like ears and its its legs were turned backwards like a dog and had claws and you know i, I i'm just not going to delve into that kind of stuff well i don't know have you ever looked at baboons ears they have formal pronounced ears and they're actually set up a little higher on their head i could see where somebody could actually look at them uh you know it's not like you're going to be studying them for a, a long long time right uh you know you glance at them you might actually mistake it for you know a dog like Happier. You know, you could, and even the legs, I suppose, I mean, you know, encountering one of these things induces a lot of fright in a person. I mean, it's a, it's a dramatic shock to the system. And I suppose if they're prone to believing something like that already, you know, your mind might induce some kind of a hallucinatory effect that would a person would see that, or because these things can do different things because their, their leg proportions are different than ours. And, and oftentimes are seen moving very differently, and even on all fours, um, they might actually interpret that as canine rather than primate. Tom, shall we move on? Well, we can move on. Okay, next question is, my impression from reading the stories of the missing people is that Bigfoot seem to move along creeks and streams when crossing territory in addition to game trails. It seems to me that an effective way to find the creatures would be set up a hunting-type blind in a tree along or off stream paths. These seem like the highway for the Bigfoot movement. Would minor waterways be the best place to catch them out? Are there any reports of hunters encountering Bigfoot by waiting like this? Well, we could, you know, refer people to Gerald's account. He was in a hunting blind when those five creatures came in on him. That's right. Uh, it's not not something I'd recommend. Yeah, I would think a blind would be the absolute last place I would want to be. You know, if you want to be a um, camouflage burrito, then, you know. Right? <laughs> camouflage burrito. I love it. A friggin' soft taco. well i mean the point is you know gerald and his hunting companions were they were in blinds and they were i don't remember how far apart a couple hundred yards i think from each other and the other two guys moved without telling him and and if you recall it and i I guess we could i I don't have the episode number it was quite a while back i think three years ago on the show but um you know the bottom line of the story was that he used his elk call and he started getting some weird calls back yeah, different types of calls. I think wasn't it an owl and and some other noises, and then 
Yeah. He got out of the out of the stand and started head toward his truck, and then five of these things circled him, and he mm. and he barely got out of there, you know, with his skin. So. Um, that not, sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, not not a good situation. No, and, and you're a captive audience. You are when a captive you're audience. You're in that tree stand. What are you going to do? Yeah. Say, hang on, Mr. Bigfoot. Let me uh, let me climb down first. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. So, um, yeah. Milo Forrest, you guys jump, jump in with opinions or thoughts on this stuff. Well, I, you know, I, I was trying to fully understand the, the way they were asking the question because it seemed, it seemed like, uh, were they asking whether Bigfoot used waterways as a means of travel? Was that what they were, were asking? Uh, because I would think that that would certainly uh, be logical uh, for them to hunt around waterways because right. you've got your prey animals coming in to, uh, uh, I mean, African lions and uh you know, other predators do that in Africa all the time. They wait for, uh, you know, prey animals to come into the water sources and drink. And they're very vulnerable when they've got their heads down anyway, uh, drinking. And so it's an op- opportune time to, to take prey. Now, as far as <clears throat> being in a um, blind, I don't hunt. So uh, never been there. And I won't be there, so I couldn't even imagine being there, um, you know. But that would be uh, rather disconcerting to be out calling uh, a, a prey animal in, and then all of a sudden you become the prey. So uh, I wouldn't want to be there, and uh, I find it disconcerting enough to have them growling at my window. So anyway, maybe I'm the prey animal, and I just don't realize it. Yeah, I think I think they would probably figure out fairly quickly what the blind was and and what was going on with it. Again, if it's something that doesn't. Yeah, belong. but I think they're smart enough to know uh, unless they see the weapon, which I think Bigfoot obviously recognize what guns are. Right. But unless they actually saw a weapon, um, they might see you as oh well, looky here, guys, what we've got. You know, yeah, right? Plaything. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna see the stand in the tree and think, hmm, that doesn't belong here. You know, right. I worked with a guy years ago. It wasn't Bigfoot. It was grizzly bears, and <laughs> he had um, he had a tree stand about 15, 12, 15 feet up. And you know, long story short, the grizzly bear, you know, when they shot at it, it didn't take off running, and it came up the tree stand towards him. So uh, I was thinking, that's just not a good thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what do well, we have? Well, grizzlies are totally unpredictable anyway. Oh, yeah. I don't even think they know what they're going to do one moment to the next. Oh, I think you're probably right there. <laughs> I've heard plenty of stories about people that have killed them and... and uh, hunted them in Alaska, and I'm telling you, that's not something I'd want to go out there and uh, hunt. They're intelligent. They're very smart. Yeah, they are. They are. Um, okay, so on a previous show, well, this is, oh, I'm trying to remember this, four or five episodes back, um, There, it was mentioned that some Indian tribes have actually made 
treaties or agreements with Sasquatch to avoid conflict and territorial disputes. And now, if true, this is absolutely incredible. It's really important. Um, what's known about this? Which tribes report this? How is the agreement reached? Do they use language to the, reach the agreement or some sort of writing or language? Or symbols. Could it be symbols like stuff on the ground or... Hey. hey. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know that we got details. I thought that was interesting as well. Um I think it was something. You know, I could see, you know, you got Indian lawyers on one side and you got Bigfoot <laughs> lawyers on the other side. I, I, think, I think we actually addressed this a week ago or two weeks ago. Yeah, uh, I remember And it's, it's most likely, you know, sort of an unspoken type thing, you know, where, like what we did in, in Yakult back in 89, 90, where, you know, we, we stayed in the yard. We didn't go out in their area at night. In the daytime, they were gone. They were up in their sleeping areas so we could go out into the fields and and look through the areas uh you know an hour before sunset we made sure we didn't go anywhere except inside the fenced yard around the house uh, and the creatures would come down but they would not come in the yard they would come at the edge of the yard but um except in the very beginning that things happened there uh they wouldn't come in the yard after after we started going there and, and making a regular presence there, then they would come up to the edge of the yard, but they wouldn't come in. So that was sort of a, a for a lack of a better term, an agreement. You know, each side respected the other one's boundaries. So I'm pretty sure that that natives, was that was the term that was running through my head. It was more like you had reached on a kind of a mutual understanding of boundaries this is this is my territory that's your territory and each side would respect the others and and it worked for nine months until you know uh, an idiotic situation happened but as long as that situation was maintained it persisted well i'm going to jump in here Uh, i think that we i think you're right will i think we did discuss this briefly uh, on another uh, session, but um, that would be assuming that Bigfoot had means of a language, uh, which would mean they'd have to have a hyoid bone, which would mean that they would be the only of the primate besides humans that do possess that. Um, I kind of allude it more to the situation you have with chimpanzees and humans in these regions where they've had so much violence and so much um, uh, terrorism going on that the chimpanzees readily learned that these humans were out hunting them as bushmeat during the days. So that was when the chimpanzees were foraging. I mean, it's just natural for the uh, chimpanzees to forage during the day in the, the canopies. Well, they learned very rapidly, and it was <clears throat> kind of that being an understanding more so on the, the chimpanzees' parts than the humans, but uh, that, okay, well, we're going to forage at night rather than forage during the day. So I can see where they can reach an understanding, which is more less than everybody sit down and reach an understanding, but more of a, a knowledge of, okay, they're coming in this far into the area, so therefore, I'm going to stay out of that area, and I'm going to go 
elsewhere or I'm going to actually change my feeding habits. So that way I won't have, there won't be any conflict between the two. Yeah, I think in that case, you know, it's sort of the opposite of what I said earlier. You know, if you if you want to throw the creatures off, then you change up your routines. But if you establish a routine like we did in Yakult, they picked up on that and, and it seemed to function after that. You know, they had their time in their area. We didn't bother them. When they left the area, then we could go out there. So it seemed to work under those circumstances. Exactly. And I would think if they started being hunted, they would recognize that very quickly and change their behavior accordingly. Oh, of course. I think they're more intelligent than chimpanzees, so, you know. Forrest, just real quick, I want to comment. I read that story years ago, and I I thought it was interesting how they would change their behavior. They're very intelligent to do that, but also I'm like, who would eat chimpanzee meat i mean you couldn't pay me enough money (laughs) they eat monkeys in asia they eat monkeys and chimpanzees and even gorillas in africa i mean to me and they do in south america yes they do and it is absolutely to me it's kind of like eating your cousin or a family member i don't know how uh, people can, you know, I, I just don't understand it at all. It's beyond my comprehension, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't they, do it. But they served the I think the Royal Navy did it as well. But to me, it's just the whole psychology of it. It's like, ah, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> no. Mm. Well, you got to keep in mind those one or two or three percentage points that make them just slightly different from us in their DNA patterns. So, I mean, that just that doesn't work for me. But I guess some people can. Uh, I mean, we have cannibals within human society. So, you know, what can I say? Well, and then you're going to be testing the whole thing about I don't know if you pronounce a prions or prions or whatever. Um, you know, human cannibals are subject to getting that spongiform, the brain-eating disease. Could you get it from eating well, that was actually, apes? Yes, that was actually uh, that was actually discovered by an anthropologist down in Papua New Guinea because the people in Papua, Papua New Guinea practice a ritualistic uh, cannibalism. And, of course, I don't know if you've ever seen the, I saw when I was going to college, uh, a film called The Birds. And it is actually about the people in Papua New Guinea who would have these ritual fights. And then they would kill, you know, if you kill one from their tribe, well, then they had to go have another fight so they could kill somebody from the other tribe. But the person that they always kill got to be taken back to the other tribe, and then they would cook them up and eat them. And then, of course, if you died, you got cooked up and you got eaten. And what he ended up, all of a sudden, he started seeing these strange um, <laughs> things that these people were doing. They were, uh, you know, exhibiting exhibiting all these strange symptoms. And uh, they finally figured out it was this form of spongiform with the, the prions. And, <laughs> I mean, this was a prime example Basically, it was mad cow disease within 
humans, and this is what created it was the fact that they were eating, they were cannibalizing their own kind, and it most generally is, uh, well, it's it, the way I understand it is it's located strictly in the uh, the brain and the spinal cord area, uh, not necessarily in the the muscle tissue, but it's always in the brain or the spinal cord. Well, you know, the ever it seems like everybody had a proclivity for the brain. You know, they thought that was delicious, so everybody partook of that. So that's how they were actually ending up with this spongiform disease. It's na- so nature's way of the saying one that actually recognized it first. Nature's way of saying don't do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, sometimes people need to pay more attention to nature. <laughs> oh boy! All right. Yeah. <laughs> and no more, no further comments on that. Uh, <laughs> okay. Will Lisa wants to know: Would you be willing to tell her uh, what you know about Sasquatch imitating? human infant cries and i'm also thinking about lee where he had that experience in the central oregon in the cascades where he heard it wasn't it wasn't infant cries but he heard like uh girls laughing out in the middle of the wilderness um where there's no camps or anything nearby so they seem to um you know uh, mimic mimic human sounds so she goes on to say she says possibly scrutinize the meaning of that particular mimicry in what environments has it reportedly occurred under what circumstances has it been reportedly heard yeah i mean they make a wide variety of noises native folks talk about them being you know doing this copying other animals and even people i would think on occasion and um it's all got to have meaning. They're, they're doing it for a reason. They're not, they don't do things for nothing. Um, and it would be interesting to know that, you know, under what circumstances they made a particular kind of sound. You know, are there, do those situations, are they the same kind of situation, you know, most often than not uh, um, related to a particular kind of sound that the creatures make? That's something we don't know. Yeah, we do know they make owl sounds. But it could, but it could very well be. I mean, it could be associated with certain kinds of situations. But then again, it goes. Yeah, it goes back to the different different groups. They all make similar sounds. They can all make similar sounds, but they might mean one thing for one group and something else for a different group. It does sound like it's a. Um, it's kind of a lure to get people to or whoever it is i think it you know like i'm I'm, again i'm thinking of lee's situation it sounds like he was specifically targeted to be drawn into the forest and he would hear it he would walk in a little bit further further down the road go a little further and he came to the conclusion that he was being drawn into most likely an ambush situation. I, I guess that would be the telling part, is if it were, number one, a sound that a human would be familiar with. Let's say, like, children's laughter or, or something like that, right? And, yeah. And accompanied with that behavior. In other words, you go out and, and the sound moves farther away each time you get closer to it. 
you know, that, that would be a consistent, if that happened every time, then you could say, oh, okay, well, when you hear this, don't follow it. Cause this is what's going to occur. Right. I know five guys that listened to owls a few months back. Yeah. And they kept getting further away. <laughs> right. Yeah. They kept, they kept moving away as we moved. Right. And we eventually came to the conclusion, uh, we need to leave. <laughs> this is a, sounds like a recipe for an ambush situation. Well, I'm just curious. Do you think that, that there's smart enough? I like that. What's that, Forrest? I said, do you think that, uh, I, I would think that they're smart enough to recognize that uh, humans, just like other primates, respond to infants crying. And even when you see, uh, you know, baby primates making their little uh, cooing and then screeching noise, cooing and then screeching, and that, I, I think I've said that before, that that is pretty much a, uh, a the same sound amongst all primates uh, when they're calling their mother. And yet you will have other, uh, other females responding to that as well. And what I'm thinking is that they may think that sounds like baby, babies crying or even children laughing, that they n- may know or have recognized that humans will respond in a like manner and like, oh, why have we got children or a baby out here in the forest? I must go see what the problem is. Right. So, um, you know, I think maybe that they're smart enough to understand, hey, we can we can call them in this way. I would think, too, you know, I mean, that's one way to view it is that it's it's a mimic trying to lure people in. But what if it's creatures, well, the young creatures actually making those sounds? That the that that their young creatures would be making that sound, or, or something that we would interpret as something similar to a human sound. Huh. Hmm. I mean, I don't know. I'm just speculating. I, I don't know either on that one. That that yeah, that'd be pure speculation. Food for thought, though. Yes, <laughs> that'd be. Yeah, that'd be interesting. So is it like coyotes or what is it that sounds like a baby crying? Is it coyotes? That... Uh, not that I know of. What do you think, Tom? Oh, man. What was it? Um, yeah, I mean, the coyotes that I've heard sound like coyotes. You know, that's, I mean, my experience is pretty much just hearing them yip. You know, I've been out camping out mm-hmm. Central Oregon desert and hear them yipping at about four or four thirty in the morning. It's like they, you can tell one of them caught a rabbit because it all ramps up and it just goes. Mm-hmm. You know, they go berserk for a while. So I think so that's ooh, about it. I think foxes make some odd noises, but I don't know about baby-like sounds. Yeah. Well, and I've heard baby sounds. You know, there's been speculation that, well, gosh, people that hear these Bigfoot sounds, what they're really hearing is a fox. Okay, think of the size of a fox, and then think of the sound that the Bigfoot makes where it practically rattles your chest, or sometimes it does rattle your chest. I'll tell you what Foxes that, don't do that. Yeah, I, I can tell you the <laughs> that really loud one that we heard up uh, on the Quinault River. That was no other animal than one of these things. That had a huge, huge set of lungs, and and the sound was really overpowering. It wasn't one of the twelve hundred pound foxes. It was. It was probably a twelve hundred pound one. 
Hey guys, everything's bigger in Texas, but I don't even have twelve hundred pound boxes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Danny's got a question, and he's this one's kind of for me, but I'll, Will, I'm going to bring you in as well. Will, you said that if you could undo knowing what you know about these things, you probably would. And is that the way? And now Danny's asking if I feel that way. I would say. Yeah, I, I kind of got mixed feelings on that. Number one, I'm glad that I have the knowledge and I'm still, to some extent, intrigued by the creatures. But I also think back before I had any clue that these things existed and how much fun it was to just go camping and not worry about that or not, not consider that, camping, hunting, fishing, hiking, and all that. So um, that was a fun time. That was, uh, you know, ignorance is bliss. I was just going to say, I, I missed the ignorance, you know, uh, of this topic because I really loved to fish and hunt and, and hike and do all those things before I knew about this stuff. Yep. And now it's just no, no, no. I think about <laughs> one of the areas, one of the little lakes that I love so much. Mm -hmm. And that's actually where I found my first footprints. And I wasn't like, yeah, check it out. Bigfoot prints. I was like, oh, no. They stole my lake from me. I can never, I'll never camp there. Never. No. Well, it's like, <laughs> you know, growing up, I used to love to go up, you know, in the mountains and, you know, sleep on the ground in a sleeping bag and never have a concern in the world, you know, how peaceful it was, you know, not thinking you could be snatched up and, and made a snack of, but... Uh, you know, having that knowledge now, it's like, no, I don't think so. Just got to make right. sure you're not the slowest guy at the group, dude. Yeah, all you got to do is trip, all you got to do is trip somebody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's true. I mean, it's, you can't go back. No. There's no going back. No. Okay, I want to say something about that. I'm glad I saw it. I wouldn't change nothing. Right. You know? I understand that. And so I still am intrigued with the topic, but now when I go into the woods, it's well, it makes different. You aware. It's a thousand percent different. Yeah. You know what? You know what's out there. It, it's kind of like everything from grizzlies to whatever. All that's by chance, too. I mean, if you walk on one, well, sh you know, it, it's basically, a, oh, crack your pant moment but still it's the idea of knowing that it's out there i like that it it, it puts something in my toolbox where i go yeah that isn't what it, i know what it is <laughs> well you know i think about uh two summers ago when i was out and i saw the the one that i've seen so far i shouldn't say my first one it's my first one so far the only one at this point but we were right next to this thing for a very, very long, prolonged period of time for hours. And we were walking around, had no clue that it was there. And it wasn't until I think it probably got agitated or provoked and it, you know, let off uh, the, you know, iconic Bigfoot smell that people talk about that just horrible stench. And that from that point on, that's when we knew it was there. But it, what, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is we were 30 feet away from this thing for 
a lot of the time and had not a clue. That is really super close. It is. It's very. It's almost as bad as having one peek at you from over the top of a tent, right? Yeah, I was. Just, yeah, hey, talk about baby sounds. I was letting some go right there. <laughs> <laughs> I could I could hear my brain no, going, Mommy, Mommy. <laughs> oh, God. I was going to say, no more disconcerting than having uh, to look at your bedroom window and see one rattling your air conditioner as well. I much, I much rather have one of those sightings that I had above north of Coeur d'Alene when it just walked across the road in front of me versus having nothing but a pane of glass between me and it. So, you know, my whole attitude when I was studying anthropology was I was going to go out and find Bigfoot, you know, the gentle <laughs> giant of the woods. Uh-huh. Well, you know, my whole my whole uh, thought pattern has completely changed on that one now. Horace, I sent so. you that cartoon on the gentle giants by Larson. Yes. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was the thinking. Um, and, and in some circles, it's still the thinking about these things. Oh, and, yeah. You know, it's not very realistic thinking. Well, I mean, your only comparison by most people's standards is to a gorilla. And let's face it, gorillas are not really, I mean, they can be. I mean, they're huge. And they have, you know, have battles amongst themselves. But as far as uh, the only attack I've ever heard of, on anybody was uh, Armand Sarmiento. Uh, he got rolled by a young gorilla, and the, uh, I think it may have attempted to bite him in the leg, or it might have bitten him in the leg, but he just kind of like got rolled down the hill. That's the only time I ever heard of a gorilla ever attacking anybody. And you look at gorillas, they, they are the gentle giants of the forest. I mean, they just sit there looking at you so placidly, and Every once in a while, the, the, the big silverback will jump up on all fours and kind of jump up and down or beat his chest, you know. But, I mean, mock charges. But they don't really present much of a, a threat to humanity. Humanity pr- uh, presents more of a threat to them. But, I mean, that was the idea of most people. Oh, they're just like gorillas, you know. And, and so, some people still think of them that way. Guess what, folks? They're not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Forrest, and I think about, it's actually, it's one thing to go miles, you know, hours from your house into the wilderness and have an encounter with one of these things. And when you go back home, you're home, you're home and you're you're safe, you know, where, where you should be in your house. But your situation is different. You have ongoing activity. You had this thing, you had one in your house, you had one rattling, I don't know if it was trying to remove the air conditioner or whatever it was doing. That's that's gotta be unnerving. You know, forest situation well, yeah, forest situation <laughs> isn't that unlike Carol's in Missouri. You know, when you think about the different things that have happened and, and their behaviors are very similar. Well you know guys, I have actually I listened to her I went back and I listened to her uh encounters. And I'm here to tell you, and I think Tom and I have kind of talked about this a little bit. My whole attitude, I thought, you know, that I was just the, you know, uh, that th- this was all curiosity and that I was just, uh, you know, something to pass their time with and watch 
watch me watching TV or whatever they watch me doing, you know. Um, but you know what? I have adapted a new attitude. I don't think that is exactly what they're doing. I, I'm a little more, I have changed my pattern of living because of them, because I don't go, I used to go out in the dark, never bothered me. I don't do that anymore. I just don't do it because I don't feel comfortable doing it. Because you know what? I am not so sure that them peeking in my windows just because they want to watch uh, uh, Fox News. No, so, it's, it's um, a little bit of insidious a, behavior. Yes, it is. You know, it's kind of like watching the prey and when is it going to be an opportune time to, to snatch the old lady, right. you know? And again, it goes back to that patterns. They're watching patterns. So that's one of the things, folks, you need to do is break up those routines sometimes. You know, throw them off balance. Well, I've, I've done it. I've changed a few things around here. And, uh, and lately it's been quiet. Let's knock on wood. It's changed that way. Oh, that's good. But, I mean, I, if you'd have asked me 40 years ago, you know, my whole thing was, I've got to go find Bigfoot. Well, you know what? I didn't have to find Bigfoot because Bigfoot found me. So, you know, I wrecked my cat. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's kind of the way it works. <laughs> yeah. How, was, when do you remember all this starting? I mean, the history of your place, has it been, like, uh, sporadic, or has it just really been stepped up? Well, as a child, and, and Milo, you might have not heard the original story, but <clears throat> my, when I was a child here, and uh, I mean, I don't mind throwing it out there. I'm 69 years old, okay? I'm not afraid. I'm not embarrassed by my age. I, it is what it is. Um, I don't act or really even look like a 69-year-old, but uh, obviously Bigfoot may have different thoughts on that. But uh, um, as a child here, when I was, I always came out for the summers when I was younger and I stayed with my grandparents and my grandfather always told me about the woolly boogers. They called them woolly boogers. And, mm. uh, so I was never allowed after dark outside. That was just absolutely forbidden. And for years that, and this was something that I finally had to kind of, I sat here one night really pondering on something about my grandmother had complained for years after my grandfather passed away about having people window peeking all the time. She was always seeing somebody window peeking. And so my mother went and bought the big halogen light and mounted them on every corner of the house. And I mean, that house was lit up <clears throat> like Fort Knox. And that was the only time I remember her not talking about having window peekers. Um, so it must have been effective to keep the, the window peekers away. But it was like seven years ago that I started recognizing some things that were happening here. And the only reason I started recognizing, I thought they were odd, but I didn't really associate, say, oh, well, a Bigfoot did that. No, I did not, because I was just thinking, you know, like the twisted trees, big twisted trees up in the the uh, cedars out here and hanging down. And I'm like, going, you know, what would have caused that? The feed trailer door ripped off of it uh, and then pushed like three feet sideways. And 
you know, things like that, that I thought, that's odd. How did that happen? You know? And then I started listening to, well, I hate to admit it. I was listening to another podcast at the time because, well, you didn't have yours at the time, but you used to be on it. And you know what I'm talking about. And I actually, (laughs) okay. So I (laughs) heard these stories on that podcast and I was going, could it be, could it possibly be? And then when my friend and her grandson, her grandson had started coming out here and helping me with cleaning the barn and such. And she was out here, and then one day, he just w- happened to be wandering around out there, and he found those tracks, and that was when we just all kind of went, oh, my God. <laughs> I think oh, wow. we just figured out what the heck is happening. And, of course, then that night that I got woke up with the air conditioner incident, there was, it, it was no denying anymore what exactly was causing the problem. And, um, you know, that that was a pretty scary incident and then of course a month later when uh one of them actually was in the cabin now that 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 was like okay that is where i draw the line you know (laughs) so you know you ever wonder everybody you hear you heard from people you know often i I know everybody does that that you know odd things might be happening around their property um without a direct sighting or footprints people wouldn't even consider these creatures but it could be them yeah i wonder how often that happens where it's the creatures doing something but there aren't those two direct uh connections to make you know to make a person think oh that's these things just odd occurrences you know it's got to happen all the time and people just don't realize it i mean i mean i looked at those cedar trees all twisted up there hanging down and i'm like what in the world would cause that and of course i had a friend there and He's going, oh, the horses did that. I'm like, that's 20 feet up in the tree. How in the <laughs> heck did the horse do that? <laughs> I mean, I got talented horses, but they're not that good. So, uh, you know, I, it happens all the time. You know it's got to. Yeah, I'm just... It comes back to the point where I, that's why I don't regret not knowing about it. You know, I, I think I think my lucky stars that I actually had that chance to see one. So I'm I'm happy for that because now if I see something out there in the woods, yeah, it's time to turn around, dude. <laughs> <laughs> time to go the other way, Milo. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> at least be aware of it, and then that way, okay, I'm treading on his on his on his property now, so. What do you do? Well, the sad thing about it, I think, is that there's probably signs out there that all of us have missed and that some people are not aware of and may never be aware of that have walked right into situations where it turned out to be disastrous for them and probably deadly. And that's where I look at some of these situations with these missing people. Mm -hmm. And not to say that Bigfoot's you know, responsible for all of them. But I think that there are situations where people get themselves into, you know, because everybody and their dog now is running around with an earbud stuck in their ears. And we know about that because that was part of the reason that I had a problem that night. But sometimes I think that might have been a saving grace for me because I didn't wake up, you know. 
<clears throat> in that situation. But we have people running around with earbuds, going down hiking trails. First off, that puts them in, in a real bad situation, even as far as uh, other oh, animals, bear. bears and coyotes and all that. Yeah. So why would you be doing that? But, I mean, people get themselves into situations sometimes where I think if they looked around and became a little more observant and were aware of some of the things that these animals do, you know, they might could have avoided what may have ended up happening to them. Yeah, our, our awareness is definitely um, at a much lower level than it has ever been because of the devices that we use now. Situational well, awareness. When everybody goes I camping now, they take, their, they take their home with them. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, if you're in the woods, why would you... I mean, nature is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. I think it trumps listening to whatever it is you're listening to on your earbuds. So, you know, listen to that when you're back home or whatever. Um, but, I, you know, I talked to a guy a while back who was in the woods, him and his buddy were. And his buddy watched as a mountain lion climbed down, face down, a, um, uh, a tree and then started to pace his friend and got up right behind his friend. He had to dispatch the mountain lion. He didn't have any choice. And they turned it into fish and wildlife and fish, fish and wildlife ruled that it was, it was justifiable. The thing was just getting ready to pounce. But his friend had absolutely zero indication that this it happened very quickly. He had no idea. You know, cats can be very, very quiet. And the areas that I've gone to, 100% of the time, I find cat tracks, cat scat. Well, yeah, we got I've that out never, here in Enumclaw. Yeah, but I've never seen one. I mean, they're more elusive than Bigfoot. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they can be a problem. I mean, they're not, I don't think there's, I think it's a growing problem simply because their population is growing. But, you know, I don't want people to think that, you know, cats are just out to get you. But Forrest, you said something that was real interesting, and that is you thought that you were looking for the topic, but actually it found you. And I was thinking about this the other day. I've talked, Will and I both talked about this more than once, how this topic has found me far more often than I found it. I go to where they're not, there they are. I wanted to go to an area to harvest some trees and my buddy goes ah oh, no, they don't want to go there we're going to go to this other place that i hadn't been to in 40 years and i was like oh, okay well whatever and that's where i had an encounter with one so well tom if you think about um, it all four of us in this discussion have had that exact thing we didn't go seeking them they found us it's an interesting point no, yeah. no one here has been in the situation where we went out to find them well, come on now, well, Milo. Know, but... What about you? <laughs> no, that was, they found me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, don't you find it a little bit distressing? At least I do, because it suddenly makes me aware that they've been out there all the time. How long have they been watching me? Before exactly. They finally decided, I like that. You know, yep. finally decided to come up and make themselves, you know, known. And that's what disturbs me. I mean, because this all happened before the pandemic. You know, I understand where 
the pandemic may have created, uh, you know, some of these scenarios that we're, we're dealing with now. But I also understand that this happened, uh, you know, they were out there a long time before, you know, I became aware of them being there. So what distresses me is how long were they watching me? Well, you know, I think it, it happens a lot where they, they're watched a long time. I think back um, where we grew up, you know, there were a couple incidents um, down near the Puyallup River. Before we moved to Graham, there were a couple incidents. One of them I call the Rock Quarry Monster Incident because this was, you know, in 1968, I was about 10. Uh, we lived at the, on a dead-end road. We were at the very end of it, and there were only two other homes on that road. And, and you couldn't see those houses from our house because the road bent. It turned a different direction. So one night, um, I, I think it was in the summer, I don't remember. I, I don't remember being in school, but um, we saw this light. I saw this light. And, and it was moving too slow to be a car, too fast to be somebody walking. So I, I told my mom, I said, hey, there's there's a light down. You you could see our driveway went way down and around, and then there was a stand of trees, and then it would dis- you, you couldn't see past that where the tree line started. So that's where we saw the light. It came out of the tree line on the road and came around, and eventually came to our house, and this kid about my age was pounding on the door, and you know my, my mom had him come in, and he was just terrified. He said the rock quarry monster tried to get him. And I'm thinking... First of all, I don't know this kid. In in the school we lived in, in my class, there, the graduating class had about thirty five people, um, so I would have known any kid my age in that town, and I didn't know who this kid was. So he was apparently visiting grandparents who lived up the road, and he was riding his bike out after dark and got on went the wrong direction on the wrong road, ended up on our road. So first he thought it was a person coming out, and this was after dark, so it must have been light enough for him to see out there must have been moonlight or something but uh then he said this this big white hairy thing was coming after him he took off White? yeah and um so he ended up at our house and uh my dad came out and he talked to him a bit and he figured out who he whose parent grandparents he was visiting so he loaded up his bike and took him there and and uh, i heard my parents talking later that evening you know in their bedroom and my mom asked him, she said, what's, what's the deal with this rock quarry monster? None of us ever heard this. And my dad says, ah, it's nonsense. It's just some old hermit that lives up around the rock quarry, probably. And that was the end of it. We never thought any more about it. And I don't know if it was the same summer. It may have been. Uh, I was out riding my bike one day, and my, my mom, my two younger sisters, were out by the barn. And they called me over, and I said, hey, come and look at this. And this was broad daylight. It was probably 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I, I go over there, and I see down by the tree, and it was a super thick brush back there in those days. I think it's still pretty thick back there, but um, at the edge of the tree. Line. Now, everybody, anybody that's lived on a farm has cows know that the cows have routines that they do every day, the same routine. And at that time of day, the cow, our cows would have normally been you know, many acres away, we had 40 acres, they would have been way on the other side of the property. And then they, you know, in the evening, they'd be up at the barn having their grain and stuff. But they were all in the barn with their heads sticking out with their ears, and they were looking at this tree line that was maybe one to 200 feet away. And there was something big in there. It was just thrashing the hell out of the brush. And and we were looking at it. She says, my mom says, what are you, 
what do you make of that? I said, I have no idea. I, I said, maybe that bear came back. There had been a bear. We'd ran into it a couple of years before. Mm. But it was, you know, there was no bear sign. My, we, we hunted the bear, and we never caught it, but it never came back. And um, so, you know, I, I'm looking through the lens of, um, you know, the future looking back, you know, and the things that did happen later. Where I had my encounter was only four miles from there when I was 16. So, and there were things that led up to that along the railroad tracks. Uh, a friend of mine and I were... Uh, they had 10 acres and, and the back of the property butted up next to the railroad line. And Milo, you know where Scott used to live. It was over about right next to where he lived. Yeah. So we were, and I don't know if this was Bigfoot related. I don't know. Uh, but they had this shed that was in the back of the property. And it was probably, I think the roof on it was about eight feet high. It was pretty high. And we were, you know, I don't know, probably 12, 13 years old. And we were going to camp out in this shed. And something, I don't know, something, I just didn't want to get in my sleeping bag. Something told me at the gut level, don't get in there. So I'm I'm up and he's, you know, he's got these comic books and he's in the sleeping bag with a flashlight. And and I got my flashlight. I'm standing up just, I don't know, I don't know what was bugging me. But there was this big knot hole right up near the top of the ceiling in one of the uh, planks. And there was this big eye looking in there. <laughs> I don't know what it was. It might, you know, his his mom said it was probably a horse, but there weren't any horses out there. There was no animals out there. And I, I just said, hey, I, there's something looking in here. I think we need to go. We grabbed our stuff and run like hell all the way back up to his mom's house. But, uh, but it was a series of odd events that happened over, oh, probably 10 to 15 years in that area. And... There, there was behavioral patterns in that area, but, you know, I, I guess it was lead, I'm leading up to, you know, what happened when I had my encounter at our property, and, and all these things were relatively close to one another. And the creatures could have certainly, they, they, they knew I was approaching. The dog ran up there, you know, he wasn't going to go in the woods. Apparently he was aware of something dangerous in there. He turned around and took off. I come up there, and they sure would have seen and heard me they didn't leave they didn't make any effort to leave they stayed there and and thinking about it now it's a little disconcerting why they did that any thoughts <laughs> everybody's no, quiet just, <laughs> well yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing exactly that i'm thinking i'm just trying to think how to respond um i don't know well it's all morbid man well i i mean if i look at it it was like what were they waiting for you to do? Keep on coming and, and then, ooh, well, they, we're going to have a bill sandwich. They must have been watching people in that whole area for years, yeah. for years, because these different situations that happened, like, you know, we saw the tree lighting, the brush being thrashed. I'm pretty certain it was one of these things, looking back on it, because of the sheer size. We didn't see, it was too, the brush was too thick to see what was in there. So, but, mm -hmm. but something was grabbing these trees and just you know throwing them back and forth you know and a bear wouldn't do that um well no but you know what's curious is to find out about Forrest and her stuff mm -hmm. in that situation it's like why why did they bring themselves out to be known why did they i mean what set them off to do yeah, that yeah what step what step took them to the next 
level in their behavior. You know, took them to the next from, step. <laughs> from obscurity to to blatant, hey, we're gonna we're gonna invade your home. You know. You know, it's it just, seems like well, a lot of their maybe behavior is contradictory. What was that? Um, right. Well, I, I'm That's just saying that a lot of their behavior seems. Go ahead, Forrest. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did you say because um, you're by I, yourself? I, yes, I think maybe it was because I'm. I was by myself. Suddenly, my husband was deceased. So, um, you know, hey, she's by herself now. Hmm. And that could be, you know. Yeah. These things, their behavior seems to be, and I hate to use the. Uh, analogy of serial killers but when when you look at how serial killers operate from the time they're they're very young and they grow up and it's it's uh they sort of have that whatever it is inside their mind but you know they learn and grow what they can and can't do over time as they're growing up to adulthood and and it's a trial and error process most of us do it with normal things but um and i i suppose normal things would be the same same category but it's a little more dramatic with serial killers i suppose because you know the outcome is more dramatic and these things you know their behavior can ramp up to you know very detrimental things to people belligerent yeah and and it often does and i think it just depends on that level of experience like in forest case you know the um you know trial and error they try different things if they get away with those things, then they become comfortable doing those things. Then it. I was just thinking. And that, then, yeah. it, then, then they step up to the next level. It almost sounds like. Well, Tom like and it's... I actually had a conversation about this. Tom, you remember when I I told you about calling how apprehensive I was about calling the sheriff out here when I had looked down there and I had seen two end of I gone out. I don't remember exactly the the incident now why I had gone outside, but I think I'd gone out to the car to get something. And I happened to look down to the barn and I saw two individuals, dark individuals walking down there by the barn. So I came back in, I called the sheriff. Well, then after I'd called the sheriff, I had the almost horrible thought, what am I getting the sheriff into? You know, because I know that it's, right. he's going to come in here by himself. And you remember us talking about this, Tom, because I thought, should I approach him and say, you know, this is what I've got going out here? Because all of a sudden it started occurring to me, maybe those weren't people down there. Maybe those two individuals weren't people that I saw. Mm-hmm. They might be something else that this guy's not going to be able to take out with his 45, you know. So... Uh, I didn't really know how to handle that. I just kind of went in the house and and uh, prayed for the best outcome because they did show up. And there was only one gentleman that went down there, and he walked all down there, and they just had just evaporated. They were gone. See, that's it's a dilemma. It really is. See, that's, because well, what you did in that case that was changing up the routine. That's why they took off. See, it kind of goes back to the foundation of you know that ramping up behavior the the trial and error seeing what they can get away with and then they they become more confident in that if you initiate um changing up routines keeping them uh in the in the mode of unexpected behaviors on your part 
then they don't get that level of confidence. You know, yeah, and, well, and I also, that. I, I know the feeling of putting somebody at risk and, and not being able to tell them what the risk is. You're like, well, how do I, how do, how do I do this? Especially with law enforcement. Well, in that, well, in that when case, you need them, you need them. And you don't want to be labeled as, well, that lady, right? Well, in that case, I don't think, yeah. I don't think that was leading them into a bad situation because the creatures, by their previous behaviors, weren't bold enough yet to be that aggressive. You know what I mean? So, here's a question. If, if you had, if you call the sheriff and you just, what kind of thing would you, you wouldn't say Bigfoot, would you? Or would you say, hey, there's a couple of bears out here or something. Something that would make him feel like there's danger in him, right? You know? Would, is well, that, I, I'm just. My, we don't have, we don't have bears in Central okay. Texas. I mean, we used to, but Squirrels. we don't now. Squirrels. <clears throat> <laughs> well, I, I'm sure we have we have a lot of we do have a lot of illegals that come through here, and I've actually had a face to face encounter with one of them. But when I pulled the 357 out, we suddenly were speaking an inter- international language. Uh, so uh, he, uh, but I don't think that that would have quite the same effect on a Bigfoot as a, a you know, uh, um, you know. <laughs> An illegal, but uh, you know, my fear was that, and and this was something like I said, Tom and I actually conversed about was because should I say something? Because I wasn't even sure if those were humans down there, right? Or what they were, you know, they were just dark well, figures. You're concerned for the safety of the whoever's corner. going down and there, I, and I didn't want to be sending somebody else into a situation where they might be getting hurt, but. You know, how right. do you tell uh, a sheriff that, uh, hey, I, Mr. Harry might be down there? You know, they're right. going to look at you like, Mr. Harry, well, see, is Mr. Harry. <laughs> yeah, well, that, you know, that's why I came up with the bear thing. I didn't, you know, the topography and your your whole thing with bears versus no bears. Well, sometimes, so, hey. sometimes I think you'd be surprised. Now, we had Jerry Klein on the show, and Jerry did have a situation where the creatures, there were two of them. They were trying to shove his RV over. Wow. You can you he called nine one one. The guy was scared to death. You could tell, and the cops did go out there, and he said the next morning that one of the one of the officers and him did find footprints. They found where his RV had been shoved over two feet. So I guess it depends Jeez. on the on the circumstances. Um, right. You know whether whether what you say to the police and if they show up. In that case, they did. And that what about the guy up in Washington? Actually, out on the internet. What was that? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, the nine one one call that he made mm-hmm. is actually out there on the internet. You can listen oh, yeah. to both parties, right? Him and the uh, dispatcher, because you can hear the fear in his voice. And yes, on two different occasions during that phone call, you can actually hear the creatures growling outside his. Yes, his, uh, yes, you can. RV. You can. Yeah. Which, which, which? How do you get that? It's it's on our show. Um, I, I don't remember which show it oh, is, but I'll talk send to me you later. Yes, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, send you cool. a link, Milo. Yeah. But, you know, another prime example is Will, the guy up in Washington State, and that was actually in the late 90s. Mike Woolley. 
Yes, and he calls 911, and he knows darn good and well what he's dealing with, but you really can't. You know, it sounds like he's very reluctant to come out. He just said, well, something really big. That was what you heard more than once from mm-hmm. him. And I think he knew exactly what it was. Oh, he did, yeah. Yeah, I knew Mikey was a friend. He's He's gone now, but... Yeah, he, he knew what he was talking about. Well, you about. know what? I got the inference from the uh, dispatcher that she might have known what he was looking at as well because she kept asking him, "Is it is human, right? Mm-hmm. And he just kept saying, it's big, it's black, <laughs> right? it's all in black, you know? Yeah, they were kind of and, dancing and around I it. Think she might have had a, I think she probably realized what he was looking at, too. And, and, and you know, nobody in that situation is going to come out and say... I de- I got a Bigfoot standing out here looking in my window, you know, because then and a lot of yep. these police officers going to say, oh, it's a crazy guy drinking or something, you know, well, we're not going to go out it's there. It's really difficult so. for people in official positions. I mean, especially, you know, individually, if they, you know, happen to think, yes, the creatures are, out, are probably out there, uh, but professionally they can't or, or won't, you know, breach that line uh, like in that situation where the the dispatcher could have said, "Well, are, are you looking at a Bigfoot?" You know, that's kind of professional suicide, I would suppose. Yeah, and it's a shame. It really is. They should be able to be open enough, uh, without the ridicule, to be able to ask a person, "Well, is this what you're saying you're seeing?" Well, it's a shame that our society is in such a, a state that we can't, you know, be can't just say you know what guys i got a bigfoot out here right would you just please come accept that i am dealing with a bigfoot out here and i need some assistance but you know they're going to say no you're a crazy person well you know what at what point in time is is this going to become a reality and people are just going to accept it and you know let's deal with it and you know privately i've spoken with quite a few police forest service a number of other professional people you know cal fire uh, you name it, officials who have seen the creatures. But, of course, professionally, they can't, you know, go on record to talk about it. And I understand that. Well, think well about how many this. have you interviewed? <laughs> oh, a lot. A lot. But here's, yeah. here's the problem. Let's say that tomorrow, uh, the government, federal, state, local, all of them come out and say, yep, it exists. If you call and say, hey, listen, I've got a black bear on my property. I've got a mountain lion. You're not going to get a deputy or local law enforcement to show up. What they're going to do is you're going to get fish and wildlife, somebody who is trained to deal with mountain lions, bears, or wolves, or whatever the, or animal whatever control. the problem is. <laughs> right, animal control. But who is trained to deal with these things? That department does not exist, and so that's going to be a real problem. Deputies aren't trained to deal with this. Nobody is. So think about it. You're, you're going to overwhelm the 911 system if you suddenly come out tomorrow and say, yep, they exist, they're out there. And now you get all these phone calls and all these reports, 
no way to deal with them. Well, I, I would think I, the majority of them are, are going to be like, well, okay, you know, stay away from it. Don't do anything. That, that's, that's all the dispatcher is going to tell them, stuff like that. They're not going <laughs> to. Yeah, I, I mean, unless it's, it's a, outside my RV 7. Yeah, two unless feet. it's something dangerous, you know, imminent threat or something like that. They're they're going to be, well, it's, you know. It's it's in my it's in my cabin. It's rustling around the uh, the the cans of pork and beans. Um, <laughs> well, give it a can opener. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's that crazy old lady again. <laughs> oh gosh, guys. <laughs> oh lord. Tom, you just had. And I don't know of any primatologists that are going to go run up and say, "Oh, here I am. I'm here to the rescue." <laughs> mm, not anybody that's smart. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it takes it. I would think you'd want an anthropologist dealing with these oh, things. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know what? Not this one. <laughs> <laughs> I will sit and study them from the safety of my home. <laughs> and, and there's the problem. Okay. See, oh, I will go with you guys as long as you got your you come equipped. <laughs> With AR-15s and uh, and all the good stuff, <laughs> like that. Well, we'll, good stuff. we'll bring Mr. Barrett with us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Tom, do God. we have any questions <laughs> left? We all right. We we've got this is from Stephanie. Stephanie wants to know. She goes, "I'm curious if you guys know of Autumn Williams, of OregonBigfoot.com. She published a wildly fascinating book called Enoch. Um, I've I'm familiar with who Autumn Williams is. Unfortunately, I think she passed away a while back. Interesting, Will, she did a lot of her research in the same areas that we do mm-hmm. here in Oregon. And um, so she, is, she seemed, seemed like a nice enough person, intelligent and interested in the topic. Um, she wrote a book called Enoch. I am reading a book called Enoch, but the one I'm reading is written 2300 years ago so not hurrying yeah. but anyway she i actually i don't there's not a lot of sites out there that i am interested in but oregonbigfoot.com i thought was pretty good it has a lot of little nuggets and details in it that are seem useful i was just gonna look up that book see if what it says about it but it doesn't give any information well, okay. So, what was what was the question there? I think it's more of a comment. She just wants to know if we've heard of the book, and if we've heard of Autumn Williams. So, um, yes, on both. But unfortunately, like I said, I think she has. Uh, I think she. I think she passed away from cancer a while back. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean. I'm looking at what she says about her sighting, she said the thing that really struck her about the creatures was her eyes because she saw human intelligence in a non-human face. Well, that's probably true. Mm. Great. More human. Does she say anything about malevolence or sinister look? No, didn't mention that. Okay. Well, I don't know. I mean... No, that can be said of a lot of primates, though. Very true. Very true. Well, yes, it can, yes. 
for that point, I wouldn't give much credit to human intelligence then. <clears throat> well, we're running a little short on time, folks. Let's uh, go around. Any final comments, questions, thoughts? Tom, we'll start with you. Okay. No, I just want to thank everybody for we've been getting more and more questions lately and we really appreciate it. So all the questions are excellent questions. Again, we've said it in the past, but the only question that isn't good is the one that you don't ask. So send us your questions to questions at creekdevil.com and we will answer those on the air so that not only does, do you get the benefit, but all of our listeners do as well. Forrest, any final thoughts? No, I was basically just going to say about the same thing that Tom did. That uh, you know, I always say there's no such thing as a, 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 a bad or a wrong question or even a stupid question. So uh, it's the one that you don't ask that uh, uh, would be that way. So you know, every it's an open subject, wide open. So you know, feel free. Milo. Yeah. Well, I I like to go back to everything that Forrest was talking about at her home, like that. It just intrigues me how things could go 40 years without really and then all of a sudden within the last what 10 years you would say 10 years yes 10 years at least mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden wham so that kind of stuff I, I would like to know more about that what sets them up that where you know They've watched people for 40 years and all of a sudden, okay, we're coming. Is it a new group? You know, that kind of thing. New alpha, different behavioral patterns, things like that. Sure. Well, and sometimes, folks, you know, we do discuss things that we've discussed not too long ago uh, because we get new listeners all the time. And they may not have heard the discussion that we've had. So sometimes that happens. So that's what... um, that's what we do. So with that said, everyone have a great evening. Everyone listening, stay tuned to the next segment. In Bigfoot history, Trinity Alps, California, April 1966. Nick Campbell, Pomona, told Ken Coon that on April 3rd, arriving at a campsite north of Weaverville, he and friends saw something large and dark run down a very steep bank. That night, something was throwing the trash cans around, and one of the group shone a flashlight under the edge of the tent and saw a Sasquatch, which turned and stared at the light, dropped the can in its hand, turned and walked off. Next day, three miles west of camp, they saw the creature again while eating lunch, and spent half an hour playing hide-and-seek until it finally went away. Several of them saw it. It was seen once more on that trip raided the trash can two more times and took some raw bacon and eggs they left out for it. Welcome. This is a series of six stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one, Ape-like Monsters. Sightings of monstrous ape-like creatures lurking in the darkness of forests and mountainous regions of the world have been reported since the Middle Ages. In 840 AD, 
Agobard, the Archbishop of Lyons, told of three such demons, giant people of the forest and mountains, who were stoned to death after being displayed in chains for several days. In his chronicles, Abbot Ralph of Coggeshell Abbey, Essex, England, wrote of a strange monster whose charred body had been found after a lightning storm on the night of St. John the Baptist in June 1205. He stated that a terrible stench came from the beast with monstrous limbs. Villagers of the Caucasus Mountains have legends of an ape-like wild man going back for centuries. The same may be said of the Tibetans living on the slopes of Mount Everest and the Native American tribes inhabiting the northwestern United States. The Gilyaks, a remote tribe of Siberian native people, claim that there are animals inhabiting the frozen forests of Siberia that have human feelings and travel in family units. Based on the eyewitness descriptions of hundreds of reliable individuals around the world who have encountered these creatures, it would seem that the creatures are more human-like than ape-like or bear-like. For one thing, these giants are repeatedly said by witnesses to have breasts and buttocks. Neither apes nor bears have buttocks, nor do they leave flat-footed human-like footprints. In 1920, the term abominable snowman was coined through a mistranslation of the Tibetan word for the mysterious ape-like monster Yeti, wild man of the snow. For the next two decades, reports of the creature were common in the Himalayan mountain range, but it was not until the close of World War II, 1939-45, that world attention became focused on the unexplained, human-like bare footprints that were being found at great heights and freezing temperatures. The Himalayan activity reached a kind of climax in 1960 when Sir Edmund Hillary, conqueror of Mount Everest, led an expedition in search of the elusive Yeti and returned with nothing shown for his efforts but a fur hat that had been fashioned in imitation of the snowman's scalp. The human-like creature, whether sighted in the more remote wooded or mountainous regions of North America, South America, Russia, China, Australia, or Africa, is believed by some anthropologists to be a two-footed mammal that constitutes a kind of missing link between humankind and the great apes, for its appearance is more primitive than that of Neanderthal. The descriptions given by witnesses around the world are amazingly similar. Height, six to nine feet, weight, 400 to 1,000 pounds, eyes black, dark fur or body hair from one to four inches in length is said to cover the creature's entire body with the exception of the palms of its hands, the soles of its feet, and its upper facial area, nose, and eyelids. Some question the existence of giant ape-like creatures because there is so little physical evidence besides casts of huge human-like footprints. Some researchers respond by pointing out that Mother Nature keeps a clean house. Scavengers soon eat the carcasses of the largest forest creatures, and the bones are scattered. Zoologist Ivan T. Sanderson suggested that if these beings are members of a subhuman race, they may gather up their dead for burial in special caves. Dr. Jean Marie Teresa Kaufman agreed 
that the creatures might bury their dead in secret places. It may be, she theorized, that they may throw the corpses of the deceased into the rushing waters of the mountain rivers or into the abysses of rocky caverns. Others remind the skeptical that it is not unusual for certain of the higher animals to hide the bodies of their dead. Accounts of the legendary elephant's graveyard are well known, and in Ceylon the phrase, to find a dead monkey, is used to indicate an impossible task. Proving the existence of such creatures may seem to many scientists to be an impossible task, but persistent searchers for undeniable evidence of the ape-like beings feel that proof is right around the next corner in some darkened forest. Delving Deeper Reports of a large ape-like creature in the United States and the Canadian provinces are to be found in the oral traditions of native tribes, the journals of early settlers, and accounts in regional frontier newspapers, but wide public attention was not called to the mysterious beast until the late 1950s, when road-building crews in the unmapped wilderness of the Bluff Creek area north of Eureka, California, began to report a large number of sightings of North America's own abominable snowman. Once stories of giant human-like monsters tossing around construction crews' small machinery and oil drums began hitting the wire services, hunters, hikers, and campers came forward with a seemingly endless number of stories about the shrill, squealing, seven-foot forest giant that they had for years been calling by such names as Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Wakwak, Oma, or Saskahavis. In North America, the greatest number of sightings of Bigfoot have come from the Fraser River Valley, the Strait of Georgia, and Vancouver Island, British Columbia, the Ape Canyon region near Mount St. Helens in southwest Washington, the Three Sisters Wilderness west of Bend, Oregon, and the area around the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation, especially at the Bluff Creek watershed northeast of Eureka, California. In recent years, extremely convincing sightings of Bigfoot-type creatures have also been made in areas of New York, New Jersey, Minnesota, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Florida. Reports of Bigfoot-type creatures of California go back to at least the 1840s, when miners reported encountering giant two-legged beast-like monsters during the gold rush days. Sightings of the Oma, as the native tribes called them, continued sporadically until August 1958, when a construction crew was building a road through the rugged wilderness near Bluff Creek, Humboldt County, and discovered giant human-like footprints in the ground around their equipment. For several mornings running, the men discovered that something had been disturbing their small equipment during the night. In one instance, an 800-pound tire and wheel from an earth-moving machine had been picked up and carried several yards across the compound. In another, a 300-pound drum of oil had been stolen from the camp, carried up a rocky mountain slope, and tossed into a deep canyon. And in each instance, only massive 16-inch footprints with a 50- to 60-inch stride offered any clue as to the vandal's identity. When media accounts of the huge footprints were released, people from the area began to step forward to exhibit their own plaster casts of massive, mysterious footprints 
and to relate their own frightening encounters with hairy giants, stories that they had repressed for decades for fear of being ridiculed. Not to be outdone, Canadians began telling of their own startling accounts with Sasquatch, a tribal name for Bigfoot, that had been circulating in the accounts of trappers, lumberjacks, and settlers in the Northwest Territories since the 1850s. Long before the frontier folk discovered the giant of the woods, the Sasquatch had become an integral element in many of the myths and legends of the native people. Copyright The Gale Group, Inc. This article from Keep Media carried no author, citation, or date. This is the end of story number one. Story number two. Bigfoot hunter trusts his nose to find creature. Big Cypress Bayou, near Jefferson, Texas. The motor sputtered, then died, and as the canoe drifted deeper into the swamp, gray tangles of bearded Spanish moss gave way to murky water and black cypress. Knuckles whitened as Charles DeVore ripped the pull cord. His two-man canoe three decades old and uneasy under the weight of three men, teetered dangerously with every tug. DeVore yanked the cord once more, then gave up. "'We'll just have to paddle,' he said. There wasn't time to fix the propeller, and there wasn't time for precaution. The party pressed further into the swamp, because that's where Bigfoot was. Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, that elusive creature more often associated with the Pacific Northwest, lives among these knobby trees of the Big Cypress Bayou, DeVore will tell you. While other people have seen the creature, DeVore, well, he has smelled it. Of course, it's the most indescribably putrid, gosh-awful stench you can imagine. It's overpowering, DeVore said. DeVore has discussed that stench with dozens of East Texans who have reported brushes with the hairy hominid. He investigates sightings for the Texas Bigfoot Research Center, a Dallas-based group that documents close encounters throughout the state, most of them in the piney woods and big thicket. Although DeVore professes to be an amateur, he knows enough to understand the creature's ways. Bigfoot no longer scares me, said DeVore, of medium height and a bit paunchy at sixty-four. It might if uh, one was standing right over me, but they've never hurt anybody. I have a fear of wild hogs, wild dogs, and anything else out there that might bite my butt, but I really have no fear of Bigfoot. So DeVore paddles the bayou in the middle of the night, a coon hunting spotlight, and night vision camera at his side. He also wanders the forest trails he is bush-hogged near his trailer house. He sniffs the night air and listens for snapped twigs. It's a hobby, he said, a passionate interest. DeVore moved to the big cypress bayou, the slow-moving body of water that slinks between Lake of the Pines and Cattle Lake in 1990. A heart attack had forced him into early retirement. He told himself, I'm going to sit up here beside this water until the day I die and enjoy it. And that's just what he did, puttering around in his canoe with the little outboard motor that he had rigged to the back, or gliding across the deep green water in his kayak, 
exploring inlets and taking photographs. It's so beautiful out here, he said. Normally I'm not talking, and I sneak up on all kinds of wildlife. As he paddled deeper into the forest of submerged cypress trees, stained black by years of up-and-down water levels, thoughts returned to the rickety little canoe, then to the cold black water, and always to the possibility of sneaking up on the most elusive creature of them all. THE WAYS OF BIGFOOT Although Bigfoot is reportedly huge, seven or eight feet tall, and more than five hundred pounds, he is awfully hard to find. That's because he hates being around humans, believers say. When people such as Devorah go tromping into the woods, Bigfoot runs the other way. He lives in uninhabitable areas, especially around Sabine and Sulphur Rivers, the Big and Little Cypress Bayous, and Caddo Lake, where he is affectionately known as the Caddo Critter. We have more swampy areas in East Texas where humans do not live, Devore said. There's more sightings during the deer season than any other time because people are in the woods. With the advent of ATVs, outdoor enthusiasts can go farther into Bigfoot territory than ever before. In the past decade alone, the Texas Bigfoot Research Center has investigated five sightings in Harrison County, four in Panola County, and three in Russ County. Many of them involved hunters. One Longview man said that he tried to shoot the creature with his twenty-two. It let out a terrifying scream roar, and the squirrel hunter was so frightened he nearly wet himself, he reported. The Longview man's description of Bigfoot reflects many others in East Texas. Long brownish or black hair, the deathly scream roar or scream growl, and that stench which DeVore believes Bigfoot excretes, possibly from his armpits, when he feels threatened. Crystal Steiniger of Harleton says that she has experienced the smell and heard the screams. Steiniger and her colleagues with the East Texas Bigfoot Independent Study get together once a month to look for tracks and hair samples and record Bigfoot's noises on all-night camping trips. They used to attract the creature with Bigfoot calls, but they soon abandoned the calling devices because they made it too aggressive. If they're walking by us, we want to hear their normal, non-threatening type of vocalizations, she said. Adding later, I've heard solid screams. I've heard grunts. Kind of a grunt growl when you get a little too close. That was one of the best recordings. Of course, we got in our vehicle real quick. We didn't leave, but we got in our vehicle. The researchers have posted many of the recordings on their website, www.easttexasbigfoot.com. With so many reported encounters, skeptics quickly ask for conclusive proof. Hair samples or bones, for example. It's well known and not disputed that we have black bears in East Texas, DeVore counters. Nobody's ever seen a body or a skeleton of those. Predators in East Texas, which are numerous, take care of a body almost overnight. There are many theories. One, that they may carry their bodies off. After all, these are groups of them. It's not one lone animal. People have taken pictures of black bears, the skeptics note. 
One of those skeptics is Charlie Mueller, a Longview-based wildlife biologist for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. He managed the Cattle Lake Wildlife Area for eight years, and he said he's never seen evidence of Bigfoot's existence. If there's a bear out there, I'm going to find bear tracks. If there's a human out there, I'm going to find footprints, he said. But there's no Bigfoot tracks that I've seen. Mueller said he's studied supposed Bigfoot nests, but to him, they just looked like a pile of branches that had fallen from a tree during an ice storm. People let their imaginations take control a lot of times, and it's easy for someone to point out things that seem to be out of the ordinary that actually are not, he said. But to layman folks, people that don't know a lot about wildlife and the happenings of wildlife in their habitats, a lot of times they don't understand the normal things that go on. Fear of that kind of rebuttal, Devorah and Steiniger say, keeps many witnesses from coming forward. A lot of people will think they're nuts, or if they do mention it to somebody, they'll say, Oh, it was just a bear. You don't know what you're talking about, Steiniger said. They'll kind of blow it off and not take it seriously, because there's been a lot of people who have spent a lot of time out in the woods who have never seen a thing. They're happily trotting along without a clue, says Devorah. You're going to be ridiculed. You're thinking you're nuts, so most people are real reluctant to talk. If they are going to speak to you, you've got to be real quiet about it. Of course, being in the club gives me credibility. On the Bayou It was a perfectly clear October afternoon on the bayou, and Charlie Devore sliced his canoe through red and green water rippling under a light breeze. He had agreed to guide a reporter and photographer to the site of two Bigfoot encounters, that he'd investigated only a half a mile from his house. Because the land had changed hands, the only legal access was via boat, or, in this case, an old canoe. It's better to stick to the water this time of year, anyway, he said, because it's not too smart to traipse through the woods in the middle of deer season. As he guided the canoe, he recalled his first encounter. He hadn't even realized how close he'd come to meeting Bigfoot on that night as he walked the trails near his house. I'd always gone with four dogs, sometimes five, a couple of my own plus the neighbors. These dogs generally were not afraid of anything, he said. When I hit that stench, I looked around for the dogs and realized, hey, I was alone. He whistled and snapped his fingers, but the dogs wouldn't come. They just sat there squirming. I decided the dogs were smarter than me, so I went away, he said. The next night, the same thing. It went on occasionally for six weeks, he said. I wouldn't run into it every night, but it got to be the old hat that when I ran into the stink, I'd just turn around. He questioned hunters and outdoor enthusiasts who suggested that it might have been a wild hog but Devore knew better. He'd smelled hogs, and it wasn't the same. In 2002, Devore heard about the annual Texas Bigfoot Conference in Jefferson. This year's event begins at 10 a.m. Saturday at Jefferson High School. Devore went and then returned to the bayou with some answers and more than a few new questions. 
After going to that conference and finding out, hey, these things have a stink, I started talking to people who had the stink on them before, he said, and the stink described was just too close to what I had experienced. At that point, I had already gotten curious about them. I talked to dozens of people who had experienced it. But stinking isn't believing, and Devor still hadn't seen one. He gunned the boat into the swamp, past hulking primeval trees and low-lying branches toward Bigfoot. A Close Encounter When the cypress became so thick they crowded out the sun, their reflections vanished from the bayou's surface. The water instantly was black. The canoe, further now from the channel's current, cut through a sheet of scum. Devor talked above the hum of the outboard motor. Suddenly it cut out, and he couldn't get it going again. Unseen crows shrieked in the abrupt silence. Devor took the paddle and rowed through Benton Lake, a small stagnant body of water that adjoined the bayou, until the trees kept him from going any further. Over there, he said, pointing to a spot on the lake's southwestern edge. The witness had been hunting deer as he crouched behind dense brush at mid-afternoon. He reported to the Texas Bigfoot Research Center that he noticed movement in the corner of his eye. Fifty yards away, the hunter told Devor that Bigfoot emerged from the water, stood up, looked side to side, then walked into the woods and disappeared. The hunter watched him for about two minutes. The creature was six feet tall and covered in hair from head to toe, and in the absence of direct sunlight he appeared to be completely black. Devor, having interviewed the hunter several times, deemed him a very credible witness. Finished with his story, Devor docked the canoe on a muddy bank that had built up along the edge of a massive cypress tree and fiddled with the motor. A piece of twine had wrapped itself in the propeller, and after he unwound it, it cranked on the first pole. He ordered the heaviest of his passengers into the bottom of the canoe, stabilizing it, and he took off for home. Though he did not see Bigfoot today, he knew it was only a matter of time. It exists, he said. Too many people have seen it. It exists. Story originally published by the Longview News Journal, Texas. West Ferguson, October 17th, 2004. This is the end of story number two. Story number three. Fort Hall, Bannock County, Idaho, August 2012. A conversation I had. All the activity mentioned is southeast Idaho near Fort Hall, like the camping trip with rocks, was around Fort Hall, Idaho, where there is a lot of Bannock and Shoshone Native Americans. Every fall I drive up Highway I-15 from Southern California to Montana to hunt with friends there. I tend to find myself stopping in Pocatello, Idaho, for a motel, and also visit a certain bar there. Twice I have run into a man I will call Gary for this submission is without his knowledge. 
I had a casual conversation with Gary at the bar in November 2011. Now, before I go on, I want to mention we were drinking beer, and no other kind of liquor is served there. He and I just happened to walk in about the same time and then started talking, so we were not intoxicated. Since I had met him a year prior, I felt like this was an instance of synchronicity, and maybe there was something special that he was about to share with me. So I asked him some questions. Not able to repeat the conversation verbatim, these are the answers and stories I got from him, which I wrote down an hour later when I got back to my motel room. I asked him if he was a Native American. He said yes, half Bannock Indian and a tribal member. His age was early fifties. When I asked him if he had ever seen a Bigfoot, he snapped back a bit and then turned his back to me. I thought to myself, here's another person who might think I'm a nut job. But then Gary turned around slowly, and facing me, he said, Three times, he went on. I grew up in the Fort Hall, Idaho area. My earliest recollection was a camping trip as a small boy in the early 1960s. My father, cousin, and I were walking through a canyon, and Something threw rocks the size of baseballs at us from afar. There was also the sound of timber cracking. My father told us we needed to leave the area as we are not wanted by the mountain people. We are the Agai people, meaning salmon eating, and we know all the good salmon runs. And tell me about seeing one. Well, I saw one in the afternoon on a dirt path below me in a small canyon. The Bigfoot was dragging a sagebrush to erase his tracks and conceal his footprints. They will also step on stones when they can to avoid making tracks. Well, you mentioned three sightings you've had. Where? Around Eel River, Trinity Forks, Snake River. Some people ask if they are real, then why are there never any bones found? Do they bury their dead? Yes, but in water, weighted down in rivers or ponds with stones. So we are talking about an animal that is shy, clever, and territorial, all signs of intelligent creature. They are more of a spirit than a human. And at this point, Gary seemed to lose interest and change the subject. I sensed the subject of Bigfoot was somewhat taboo for him to tell me about and not meant for the non-tribal. Todd C. Homer, August 23rd, 2012 That's the end of story number three. Story number four. Kino Hill, Yukon Territory Kino Hill, Yukon Territory, Summer 2000 I'm not sure which summer it was, maybe five, six years back. The wife and I were returning from Kino Hill early one morning. Our coffee thermos was in the back of the truck, and it was my fault it was back there. She wanted coffee, so we stopped some miles before Elsa and got out to get the thermos and relieve myself on the side of the road. There was a stand of trees there. I wandered off a ways, walked way up there, 
I don't know just why I did that. It was there that I seen this bear sitting down at a carcass of elk. Maybe deer. Don't know what that carcass was for sure. Not much left of it. No rack. Mostly a skeleton. Maybe a doe. I'm thinking it was black bear at first sitting down beside the remains. But that be some unusual black bear. Bears usually stand up and tear at their kill and eat it standing up. This bear sat there, pulling at what was left of it. Way off in the distance, there'd be a fox pacing back and forth, awaiting its turn at the kill. And just then, my wife yelled at me to get myself back in the truck. The bear heard her and stood up on two legs, looking in my direction. I fell backwards a bit at its size. By God, I seen it was no bear. I believe it was a boak, and... It had a piece of something from the carcass clutched in its hand. I don't know what. Looked like weeds. It stood there looking at my direction, and the fox took off at a dead run. The wife yelled again, and this boak started waving its arms up and down, and stomping forward on one leg at me. Damn, I couldn't make these legs of mine move. I seen that it was black, and... It was naked except for hair around the usual male parts, chest, arms, and it was unshaved looking. The beard was long and scraggly with crud and stuff in the whiskers. It took a step to my direction and stomped a foot waving its arms like a crazed man might if he was high on something. I fell back again and started crawling like a baby to the truck on my hands and knees and finally was able to get up and run to the truck. I saw my wife looking big-eyed at me. Behind me on the top of the area where the stand of trees was be that boak, standing watching us get into the truck. We started the engine up and drove off, leaving the damn thermos out in the middle of the road there. My woman is Tashoni, First Nation Canadian, and I am English, and probably Micmac, though... I was raised up an orphan by whites named the Thomas clan in a settlement near Nova Scotia. We married 38 years ago, and her folk know the bulk, but we don't see any in our lifetime until that day. I was never taught about bulks. My woman told me what her people know. It was a shock to both of us. The bulk is a strange marvel. Yes, it is a strange sight. The wife says it is good to see one. I don't know how good having the shit scared out of me can be a great blessing, but she says so, and I listened. We don't speak about this much. The wife is still mad at me because I lost the thermos of coffee. I could have been killed, and she would still be mad about the thermos. We don't own a computer. My friend here at the petrol stop looked up and found your website listed, so we tell you about this incident. About the bulk, we are not sure on height. I was in shock when it stood up full size and not thinking clearly, but I know it was maybe eight feet up and features fitting to its size. At the time, it could have been ten feet tall for all I noted. I don't know what it weighed. I didn't stop to ask, ha ha, but... It was sturdy, stocky, and plenty of bulk. I weigh 240 pounds, and a mid-sized man. 
The bulk must weigh double what I weigh. There was no sound except the stomping sound. No smell. Was black and had whiskers and long straight hair like woman down its back and shoulders, black like shiny. There was nothing else around but a pacing fox. Nothing else I can think of. I was sure it was a black bear before it stood up and started waving its arms and stomping. My God, I get hair on my neck when I think about it. My wife said the boke is leftovers from cast-out Indian tribe. Most was killed or run off. Not many left since white men came here, and what's left is scattered and shy. They tell me the boke is skilled hunter and opportunist that works mostly after dark of nightfall. Leonard Jack Thomas Edited for Readability and Logged, April 2005 This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Broward County, Alligator Alley, Florida, 1960. It all happened in August of 1960. I was 12 years old. I was with my mother and stepfather on a vacation trip to South Florida. It was my first trip away from home. We lived in a small town, Longwood, north of Orlando, and this trip was about all we could afford for a week. I remember we headed down the east coast through Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, and on to Miami, and all the way to Key West. No interstates in Florida back then. Once we came back to the mainland, we went to the Miami Zoo one morning, and then headed west on Alligator Alley through the Everglades to Naples. It is very hot and humid in South Florida, compared to the rest of Florida, since it is in a subtropic zone. The car was not air-conditioned. I remember sitting in the back seat with my head close to the window to catch the wind. That is when I spotted it. It was standing, facing the highway, in front of a small hammock of knee-high grass, palmetto shrubs, and a few pine and palm trees, about 150 feet from the road. We locked eyes for the entire duration of the sighting. I can remember flipping back in the seat and watching it through the rear window until I couldn't see it any longer. It was not massive, but not thin, tall, maybe seven feet, medium brown, the color of a coconut. I could not see the feet or knees, no neck. I do not remember any facial feature other than dark eyes, and I did not see a profile. It turned its upper body as it stared, not its head. No odor. I did not say a word since it did not strike me as being unusual. We had just come from the Miami Zoo, and this was my first trip from home, and I had seen all kinds of strange animals for the first time that morning. This memory is so specific. When we arrived in Naples, I can recall swimming in the pool at the motel and thinking how hot that animal must be in all that heat with all that fur. The words Bigfoot and Sasquatch were unknown back then. I don't recall giving any thought to this creature until the 70s, when my son and I watched a show called In Search Of. Then I was so busy with work, home and family, and doing things for my husband's company, I didn't find the time to go to the library and research the subject. 
It crossed my mind briefly back in the mid-80s after a TV show, but nothing seriously. Obviously, this was all prior to easy access to any topic on an in-home computer. Then, I watched A Monster Quest back in the first of 2008 and googled Bigfoot after that show. A whole new world opened up. Most of the sightings of Bigfoot in Florida are in Collier County, Everglades. There is one report on another database very similar to mine concerning some college kids heading to Miami on the same road and seeing a Bigfoot watch them go by from a hammock. Alligator Alley to native Floridans is Tulane State Road 41 from Naples to Miami, not Interstate 75. It was also known as the Tamiami Trail. Lynn Chandler, Destin, Florida. That's the end of story number five. Story number six. Bigfoot Creatures Photographed in California's Sierra National Forest. July 28, 2009. The Bigfoot creature may have been captured on a remote trail camera placed in the Sierra National Forest, based on photography evidence released by Sanger Paranormal Society. Investigator Jeffrey Gonzalez said Tuesday night that multiple cameras were put in place in this remote area on Memorial Day weekend, and retrieved on June 7, 2009. Gonzalez said they did not immediately see the evidence, but upon closer inspection, noticed what appears to be the Bigfoot creature. Gonzalez said a group returned to the site to review the exact capture spot, after many theories surfaced once the original image was released in early July. The tree stump theory was ruled out, he said, because the dark object is not there. Gonzalez said the bear theory does not stand up either because the image does not have a snout on the head. You can see features of a human face such as the nose, mouth, and chin, Gonzalez reports. The arms on a bear when standing do not hang that far down. We also took measures on how high this thing was. According to the leaves and the branches that were covering the object's face, the tape measure said it was between eight and nine feet tall. The same camera that took the picture of the object also took pictures of other objects such as black bear and deer, which does not resemble the object in any way. Photo, Jeffrey Gonzalez standing in the same spot as the object in the image. Gonzalez said that Bigfoot investigator David Ragoza has been visiting this location for six years after an elderly Native American pointed it out to him. He told David that this spot in the forest was sacred Indian land and that weird things happen here. He said David has had many individual sightings and has collected footprints, but has never captured anything with the camera until now. Returning to the exact spot where the image was captured, Gonzalez said that the angle of the hill was 45 degrees, which would make it difficult for a bear to stand upright. He also said the object was clearly brown in color, ruling out the black bear. The Bigfoot creature has been reported in many different parts of the country during the 20th century, including an outbreak during 1973 and 74, primarily in southwestern Pennsylvania, 
and investigated by Stan Gordon. During that period, hundreds of Bigfoot sightings were reported, as well as hundreds of UFO reports. No photographic evidence exists from that time, although Gordon collected many footprints in that region. Aside from this single image, Gonzalez points out that there were three additional images taken several days earlier near midnight, where a bright light lit up the area. His group cannot account for how this happened, except that they are all ruling out a flashlight as the source of the light in the images. Examiner.com Photos, Jeffrey Gonzalez and Dave Ragoza Comments I don't believe the Ragoza photo of the Bigfoot shape is anything more than a naturally occurring shadow or dark spot on the background tree. And here's why. The photo of the Bigfoot and the subsequent photo of the man are clearly taken from different angles. The first photo was taken from a position considerably to the right of the position from which the second photo was taken. This is made most evident by the fact that the tree against which the man is framed is not even visible in the original photo. I've highlighted some of the most prominent visual landmarks in each photo. The Bigfoot figure in red, as you can see, it's still there in the second photo, but cropped so that only the front of the figure is visible. The leaves of what appear to be a vine maple in green, higher and to the right of the second photo from their position in the original, the large tree to the left in purple, notice how no part of it is obscured by leaves in the second photo. And the line of bark texture on the foreground tree in blue, in the original photo this line is well on the left side of the tree trunk. In the second photo, it is almost centered. I think that if one were to return to that spot and really line up one's camera to the position from which the original photo was taken, one would see the Bigfoot standing there. It's too bad the photos are too small. If they were larger and clearer, I believe the discrepancies between them would be more evident. Seeing may be believing, but it's not always the truth. Randy Stradley, September 7th, 2009. This ends the reading of the six stories. Thank you for listening. Story from Orleans, California, 1952. This person's encounter was so shocking that he blocked it from consciousness for a time. He did recall the events, however, and this is what he related. I began to remember more and more of what happened. I had me a bad case of the jitters as the memory uncoiled. The first part of the story took me back to 1952, when I had gone to Orleans to start preliminary work on a logging operation with two men by the names of Lee Valeri and Josh Russell. One evening, Josh told me Lee had gone up to Happy Camp, but not having transportation back wanted me to take the Mercury and go up and get him. I had driven the extremely crooked and dangerous road up there, but not being able to find him, started back alone to Orleans. It had been raining very heavily, and after going back a few miles, I found there had been a slide across the road. There was a man with a flashlight there who told me I could still go back to Orleans by way of a detour across the river. He said it was a dirt road that went through Bear Valley and could come out at the mouth of Bluff Creek a few miles below Orleans. I had been driving slowly down this road for about 20 miles, I guess, 
sort of daydreaming when I saw it. Dimly in the headlights and the rain was a shaggy, orangutan-like apparition of a human. For an instant, I had the impression the shaggy hair of the creature was a hoary blue-gray in the headlights. An ogre, I remember thinking. But the thing swiftly backpedaled off the road and behind a tree. I automatically passed it off his imagination and drove on by the spot. Suddenly, without warning, the car went into a violent and unreasonable skid. I brought the car back under control, but for some reason glanced into the rearview mirror. In the dim light of the taillights and license display bulb, I thought I could see a savage-looking face looking through the rear glass. I continued on, and when I looked again, there was no face. So again concluded it was imagination. I had gone another quarter mile, I guess, when across the road was a small six-inch sapling. I stopped the car and got out, intending to drag it aside if possible. Suddenly I heard the swift thud of flying feet of something coming down the road. Reality was upon me, and I remember cursing myself for not paying attention to what I had previously seen. It was the shaggy, human-like monster I had seen in the headlights. It at once started circling around me, snarling and acting very menacing. It kept this circling up for some time and once came up quite close, and I could see its face reflected by the headlights much better. The eyes were round and rather luminous. The hair on top of its rather low and rounded head was pretty short. Its eye teeth were far longer than a human's. Also, the chest and upper part of its torso was rather bare of hair and also leathery looking. It wasn't too tall, not much more than my own five feet nine inches, although it had a stooped, long-armed posture. Then suddenly it changed tactics. It would stalk off down the road, but would come charging back like a bat out of hell when I started toward the car. The hour was late. The thing was becoming more and more menacing, and I was almost paralyzed by this time, paralyzed by fear. Suddenly a plan of escape, born out of desperation, popped into my mind. Since the monster seemed to think I couldn't get away, why not, when it went down the road again, playing cat and mouse, try to get in the car and smash through the sapling? This I did and sprang for the door of the car a dozen feet away. No sooner was I inside when there it was, trying to claw through the window. I jerked the car into gear, floored the accelerator, and can vividly remember the wet sapling glistening whitely in the headlights as the car slashed it aside. I remember the scream of rage and frustration it then gave. It was a curious, trumpeting sound, like the scream of a stallion and the roar of a mad grizzly. The car then felt as though it were being held back by something half-riding and attempting to stop it. But the powerful mercury proved too much for it, and after a couple hundred yards I felt no more resistance. To top this unbelievable experience off, believe it or not, I promptly forgot the whole experience. Then and there it went out of my mind. Not even the next day, when Lee asked me if I had seen anything unusual on that road last night, did I remember. He had come later from Happy Camp with another man hired to take him to Orleans. A few days later, an incident happened that should have brought the experience back, but didn't. Lee noticed a big dent in the grill of the car, and asked me how it got there. I told him I didn't know. Incidentally, Lee told me that something had tried to push them off the road when they came through on the detour. He said there's something strange going on around here, and let the matter drop. 
Times reporter has a look at tracks, says they're real, by Betty Allen, Humboldt Times correspondent. September 1958, Willow Creek, California. This is my story about Bigfoot. Idle words about wanting to see the huge tracks which have been appearing on the access road construction job at Bluff Creek caught up with me Friday morning at 7 o'clock. Philip Ammon, a neighbor, knocked at my door reminding me of the journey ahead. Checking with the Jess Bemis family, we found that there were new tracks to see. In the light traffic of early morning, we were soon rolling into Hoopa Valley with its light current of blue smoke hanging low. On the way to Wetchpeck, five cows lay in peaceful contentment on a small turnout beside the road. A loaded logging truck passed within inches of their noses. On the one side of the road, drops in a sheer descent for hundreds of feet into the Trinity River. On the other side, a rock cliff towered high above us. On down the road, a mother pig and three half-grown piglets brought us to a full stop. On over the Wetchpeck Bridge and up along the Klamath River, we were soon climbing the easy grade out of the canyon on the Bluff Creek Road through a wide road and well-watered, we traveled slowly, for this was totally new country to us. A driver of the water truck directed us to take the lower road around Onion Mountain to the construction site. Tremendous Cliff The country is standing on end in the steep ridges that rise higher and higher. Here and there were rough rock and tremendous cliffs, but it is all slide country. No sandstone or cave formations. Bluff Creek is a good-sized stream and looks like it would be fine for fishing. The rangers at Orleans say, for some reason, it is not. We talked briefly to Charles Doney, who was operating a tractor, and he offered us the use of his pickup truck. We never could have gone the remaining six miles otherwise. Here was a man's busy world. Heavy dirt movers working, but allowing us through. Jackhammer men had to pull their airlines out of our way. Extremely rough in some places, the road was unexpectedly smooth in others. What did we expect to see? Maybe one track, and we could say it was all a hoax. Or maybe an unexpected inner sight might give us the answer. Jerry Crew directed us to the location of the tracks. I'll show you those tracks, Crew said. I could tell that some of the construction men were quite skeptical. I am told that some of them wouldn't even go and take a look. The first actual line of tracks definitely jolted me. On the hard ground where Philip Ammon's number 12s made a very light imprint, the track of Bigfoot sunk a half to three quarters of an inch in depth. Twenty clear, deep footprints marched along the side of the traveled portion of the road. Eighteen more were seen at intervals where the tractors had not run over them. We followed them down the road for some distance and found them in both hard and soft earth. Gravel rolled out of the cut bank to the side of the road, and I quickly looked that way. I was nervous in realizing that I was in the middle of the forest growth. I looked back to see how far the men and the equipment were. The thought passed through my mind. Just what on earth is a peaceful old rocking chair grandmother doing here anyway? Doubts, hoax angle. We measured and studied the tracks. Could they be a hoax? Feet on the end of sticks? Rubber feet? 
watching the activity of the men and how hard they were rushing their work to finish this portions of the road before winter. I could hardly see any of them putting in time at night, making three quarters of a mile of tracks of any kind. Bigfoot's tracks are in perfect proportion to what one would expect in their stride of sometimes 60 inches, 52 inches, or the one short step over a small mound of dirt, which was 40 inches. Even the depth to which the track had been pressed into the ground was in keeping with their size. What brings Bigfoot into the area? My guess is that the gasoline lantern light at the cook's tent attracts the wanderer's interest. There are workers living in both small tents and trailers close by the road. Now, is this a phony? A human hoax? If it is a prank, it is so natural. Anyone with stilts with feet would have to have both foot impressions, but it isn't that easy to maneuver in the soft earth. If they are wearing novelty story feet, how do they weight them to get the right depth effect? And when a man works hard labor physical all day, does he feel like prowling about at night, missing his sleep to make funny footprints? Of Bigfoot, one of the bosses said, We have an agreement, the thing and I, but he doesn't know about it. If he leaves me alone, I'll leave him alone. We returned home, definitely no wiser, only knowing we had seen 38 perfect tracks at least 16 inches long and 7 inches wide. We saw them. We measured them. We are still puzzled. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open.